regular people are taking their knowledge and content, packaging it up in an online course, and they're making a living doing it. But not everyone is successful with online courses. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And I'm here to help course creators actually succeed with online courses. Hi, I'm Jacques Hopkins, and this is The Online Course Show. And off we go. Welcome aboard. Glad you're with us. I am Jacques Hopkins, and here with me as well as our co-host... How's it going, Dr. K? I'm super fantastic. How are you doing? Super fantastic. I like it, man. Yeah, I'm doing well as well. And I'm excited about another episode of the online course show. So let's get into it. What's going on in your world? Oh, well, I wanted to kind of uh, have a little confession here. So last week, I shared that I, I had just gotten back on from this guy's trip. And uh, I open up Zoom so the jock can see me. And <laughs> instantly, he gets to see that I have quite a large black eye. And uh, at the time, I was, I was feeling very conflicted about whether I should... Uh, I hadn't seen a single patient yet. And I was like, am I going to tell people the truth? Or am I going to tell a little white lie like a hundred times? I mean, the true story, this, this guy's trip, one of the guys on the trip, like we've been pretty much best friends since third grade. Our families went camping together all growing up, like four times a summer, we'd go camping and uh, get us together, even though I'm 41 and he's like 39 and we ended up wrestling and I came out of it with the black (laughs) eye. And so, you know, I was sitting there on this call and I was like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to tell people it was a biking accident or if I got beat up by a football or if I should just tell the truth. And uh, Jock, I just wanted to say thank you. You told me, dude, just tell the truth. So... (laughs) Well, I think, I, I mean, the truth is important, right? And right. I mean, in our, even in our marketing and what we're doing in online business, I think at the end of the day, the truth is very important. And once you start lying, even if it's a small one, it's, it opens the floodgates to, to lie even more. And so I think, you know, you are you, David, right? You have right. your own personality, you have your own quirks. I'm not saying at 41 years old, I wouldn't go on a guy's trip and get a black eye wrestling. Like that's, that's something that, could totally happen to me as well. And um, unless unless it's like really putting somebody at harm or something, like I always err on the side of truth for sure. And I'm glad you went that way. And it sounds like you think it was a good call. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, well, I look forward to seeing you with the black eye someday. That'll be kind of funny. <laughs> be able to laugh at you. But yeah, no, I mean, patients were just, you know, they chuckled. And I got to hear so many great stories from my patients this week. It was, they were pretty priceless, to be honest. You know, I know this 50 year old guy, he said, oh man, like everybody could relate. Either they could picture themselves hanging out with a friend from elementary school, or they knew somebody in their life that they're like, yeah, I know somebody that they kind of wrestle when they get together. So like this 50 year old guy, he said, yeah, that's my wife's brothers. He's like, they're way bigger than me. But like every time they get together, they end up in a wrestling match. And I said, oh, do they come after you? And he's like, yeah, but I just go limp. And I was just cracking up. And then this probably uh, mid-30s lady, she said, uh, yeah, she's like, the last time that my friend from sixth grade and I got together, she said, there was some wine, there was a hot tub. And then she told me that she could still dance the worm. And so I said, I egged her on and told her, yeah, let's see it. Then a week later, her wrist was still killing her and they took her into the hospital or the urgent care. And she had broken her wrist trying to prove that she could still dance the worm. And so, yeah, I mean, it's... uh, you know, I think that, well, and the reality is if you look around at the marketing of the gurus, a lot of them, they will like just be honest about who they are. I mean, kind of the no makeup selfie, you know, it's, there's actually times where it's an advantage to, 
to reveal, you know, kind of like a layer below the the Instagram perfect pictures. Yeah, but there are a lot of kind of fake people out there too that rent really nice cars and take pictures and and pretend that they have them or rent really big houses or boats. And there's actually a YouTube channel I've been enjoying recently called I don't know why it's called this. It's a weird name. It's called Coffeezilla. Okay. So just Coffee Z I L L A. But what he does on that channel is he exposes fake people like that. He calls them fake gurus who, huh. who just do sleazy, scammy things in order to make a buck, you know, renting nice cars, pretending that they are theirs and and taking pictures of them and saying, Hey, look, look what my course has or you know, my business has allowed me to buy. You know, you should you should buy my course. And, and he exposes things. He he does the the research and finds out that he didn't actually buy that car. And it's very very interesting. So um, that ties in well to your story about being you know true to yourself or or fake, just trying to make a buck. Yeah, and even along these lines, uh, I listened to I shared that I listened to the Snacks Daily podcast every day, yeah. and so. Today, it's Tuesday, October 13th, and uh, I was listening to the Snacks Daily podcast, and their fact of the day is that today is the Finnish day of failure. And so in Finland, they celebrate a day just where they say, hey, share your failures, share share the time you tried something and failed, and uh, let's just celebrate that. Celebrate that, you know, you don't... I don't know that I should celebrate my black eye, but I mean, there are other... (laughs) There are other things that I've tried and failed at. And and just like Nate Dodson's story about, you know, just trying a lot of different businesses, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's good. If you're not doing things, you don't fail. So it's good to do things. Yeah. Well, I, you know, if, if I can try to think of a recent failure, uh, and there's plenty in the in just the past week. But as you know, I'm teaching my 21-day piano curriculum live right now in an effort to try to nail down the best possible curriculum because I haven't actually updated the curriculum in quite some time, many, many years. And it's going really well so far. However, day 11, our most recent lesson was was 11. And it probably wasn't the best lesson and it probably wasn't in the right spot. Through day 10, I felt really good with everything, but I taught everybody what I felt was the right thing to teach them in day 11. And I got a lot of blank stares. I got a lot of confusion. And but that that what that tells me is I didn't put that lesson in the right spot and I didn't teach it in the right way. So we're going to keep moving forward with lesson you know, 12 through 21. But when the actual new version of my course comes out, I promise you that lesson 11 is probably not going to be right there uh, in the real thing. So failure is okay, but we got to we gotta learn from it as well. Perfect. That's awesome. Yeah. So the other thing, uh, it's been a few months since you shared an actual income report. We got to hear those monthly updates for a little while at the height of the pandemic and uh, you know the over six-figure numbers. But I've been curious for a little while here, uh, how did your third quarter of 2020 go? Yeah. Thanks for asking. I like to be transparent about this, not brag or anything. And these are revenue numbers. I don't have like expenses built into this either, but I do spend like 20 to 30, sometimes even more per month, um, $1,000. And uh, I did check, I was checking uh, Stripe last night in preparation for this to share this with the audience. And I went to all time and I just crossed over 2 million. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. And once again, that's revenue. So there's been a lot of expenses in that 2 million over the years, but that's over seven years of data to get to $2 million in revenue from my online piano course. But what's interesting about that is it took about six years to get to 1 million. Mm. And then uh, just about the last year to get up to two. So for me, really has been pretty exponential. And we talked about that a little bit in the interview, upcoming interview we're going to hear shortly. 
but it's it's been just such a fun ride and it's cool to to see that that hard work paying off because I didn't necessarily work harder in the past year than I did the first 6 it's just that the nature of this type of business um is really paying off more and more as more time passes so that's really fun and then as far as Q3 goes from this year 2020 uh, you know, like you mentioned, like April and May were by far the best months in my business, and that's because of the 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 initial and, uh, and newness of the pandemic. People were staying home. This was new for everybody, and people were crossing things off their their bucket list. So I don't know that I'll ever get to those numbers again, well into the six figures per month in those months. But uh, in July uh, of this year, Piano in Twenty One Days brought in in revenue eighty two thousand. And then August was sixty five thousand, and then September was eighty three thousand. Wow. So very, very good months. Very, very healthy business still. And I've got some big plans as I've been talking about on this podcast lately. So I'm excited to see where this could go um, going into you know Q four here of 2020, and then into 2021. I'm expecting big things as well. So that like let's say that September number specifically is that roughly two x what you were at last year? Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you, August is typically my lowest month. And you can see that here with 82 and then down to 65 and then up back up to 83. Last year in August, I brought in about 24K. That was the lowest month I've had in a while. And then September last year was probably about 30, 35. And so this is over 2X from last year, but we're still in the pandemic, right? People are still home more than, more than not home. But at the same time, you know, people are getting laid off too more than ever. And uh, and my my course is not cheap either, so I it's a roller coaster, man. I'm excited and nervous to see where it goes, just with the crazy state of the world. But the numbers so far are still up. So I mean, if you had to say your gut feeling, like how much of that growth is something that you've actually changed compared to last year, and how much would you give credit to the pandemic? Just a gut seat of the pants. I would give a lot of the credit to the pandemic because overall my traffic is still up. Now, it's hard to judge whether that would have happened to some extent anyway because of all the things that I have in place, right? The SEO is is doing better and better and better. My YouTube channel is doing better and better and better. So I know that overall traffic is up and there's no doubt that almost all of the increase in April and May was due to the pandemic. Now it's a little more muddy, right? Okay. It's, I'm, I'm not sure exactly but I would say that a lot of it is still pandemic related. Got it. All right. Well, the other thing I wanted to just mention briefly for the listeners, anybody that's kind of like uh, just enjoys hearing anything that Jacques and Nate put out, um, I think you might've mentioned this a little bit, but I did just want to let the listeners know that you basically sponsored a series of podcasts over on the Side Hustle Show. And it was mentioned, well, Nate mentioned that he was interviewed on it, but could you just give the listeners a, a brief idea of that series? I know the actual podcast episode numbers are 406 to 411, um, with 411 being Nate's update on the Side Hustle Show. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. Uh, Nick Loper has become a good friend of mine. He has a very successful podcast called The Side Hustle Show, where his specialty is helping people with side hustles, not, not necessarily online business either. Right. So, like one of these episodes that you mentioned is a girl who started a poop scooping company. <laughs> Her last name is Krupen. So, it's like Krupen's poop scooping or something like that. It's really funny. But a lot, of, a lot of it ends up being online business related too. And he has course creators on his show. And I've been on his show a couple of times. And it's a, it's a far bigger podcast than, uh, than this one. Not necessarily better because 
this audience is really, really fun. And I hear from a lot of you out there. But yeah, Nick uh, had this new series. He normally releases a once a week episode, but this was a every day for five days kind of uh, mini series. It was called a Where Are They Now? So he brought back five people from the past that his audience wanted to hear an update from. And he was looking for somebody or a business to sponsor just the series. And I had reached out to him before just because the previous times I had appeared on his show, I just got a lot of great feedback from his audience and a lot of people reaching out to me with questions, wanting to hire me and so on. In fact, my very first appearance on his podcast is how I got introduced to Nate to begin with, right? Three, four years ago, Nate heard my episode, reached out to me, hey, will you coach me? And that was that was the first person I ever coached with online courses back in 2017. And um, uh, Nick Loper approached me with this opportunity. We made it work with the numbers and everything. And it was a lot of fun. And it was, it was cool because in a lot of ways, I ended up kind of being his co-host, kind of like we do on this episode, because I listened to the interviews ahead of time. And then he would bring me on and we would discuss it a little bit and kind of tie that into online courses. I kind of felt like after each episode, I was like, Nick, you know, this person, you know, Miss Krupen over there, she could totally make an online course about how to start a poop scoop in business. It was kind of a broken record there, but hey, that's what I do. I talk about online courses. Exactly. So it was it was cool. Got a lot of traffic, got a lot of new listeners to this podcast. If if you um if you're listening to this episode because you came through uh that from Nick Loper, then welcome. And uh yeah, it was it was cool. Thanks for mentioning it. Yeah, I enjoyed those. All right, man. Well, we got a long oh, man. conversation with Mr. Jason Dion today. So before we get to that, let's do one more thing. We've got a win of the week. This is two in a row. Uh, we did one last week. We have another one this week. This is Josh Maynard. I uh, hope I'm saying his last name correctly, but he sent in uh, his win of the week and um, he had a cool win. He's more than beginning stages. So let's go ahead and play this week's win of the week. Hey, what's going on, Josh? My name's Josh. I've been listening to your podcast in the last six months, probably. Uh Inspiring entrepreneur, course creator. I launched my first Learn MIG Welding course on Udemy as kind of a test to see in the beginning of September. And as this month closes up, I have uh, 10 students total so far um, with no advertising really on me besides a little Facebook. And and yeah, I'm really excited and looking to create a funnel now. So I'll be uh, following all your advice and probably getting onto your uh, ClickFunnels account. So uh, Looking forward to it. Thanks for all the help. All right. So thanks to Josh for submitting that. Man, 10 Udemy sales. Congratulations, Josh. That's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Excellent. Yeah. So to some people, it might not sound like a lot, but that first sale is always the, the hardest. And typically, I don't recommend people starting on Udemy, but there is a time and a place to do that. And this was not necessarily planned, but the interview we're about to hear with Jason Dion, you know, he started on Udemy and he's actually still on Udemy in conjunction with on his own platform. So I'm excited to to share that information with you guys because it's very interesting how he's making both work. So Josh, keep up the good work. Listen to this conversation with Jason because you might be a good fit to do what he's doing down the road where he's got both Udemy and his own platform working for him. Okay. And if you're out there listening and you've got a recent win that you want to share with us, then head over to theonlinecourseguy.com slash win and just record a short audio message like Josh did. And we'd love to hear a recent win from you, whether that's a first course sale or, or your first 10 sales like Josh, or uh, even something more significant like an online course allowed you to quit your job or something like that. We'd love to hear from you. Once again, theonlinecourseguy.com slash win, W-I-N. So with that said, I think we should transition into the conversation with Jason Dion. 
David, he's been on the podcast before. You remember, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. So I looked it up. Episode 79 was the first time he came on, and then 98. So if anybody wants a little more context, then you can check out those episodes. But this man, Jason, is awesome. He's become a good friend, and he is incredibly knowledgeable at online courses, and he has turned his business into an incredibly successful business as well. $2 million a year in revenue, extremely happy students, all while working a full-time job. So why on earth would somebody still work a full-time job when they have a $2 million a year business on the side? Well, you'll find out in this conversation. So without further ado, here's the full conversation with Jason Dion. Jason Dion, welcome back to the Online Course Show. Thanks for having me. Third time. Not many people have been on this many times, man. Catch up to Nate eventually, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, it's going to be hard to pass up Nate since he was on like the first 20. So man, $2 million a year, roughly online course business, working a full-time job. How does one do that? You build a really good team and you have them help you. Otherwise, you go insane. <laughs> All right, also, you got you got to break it down more yeah. than that. Let's get into it. <laughs> yeah, so honestly, a lot of it comes down to topic. Uh, having the right topic definitely helps. I teach something, I, I teach IT certifications and cybersecurity courses, project management courses, service management courses. So we have things that teach people a skill that helps them get a job and advance in their careers. So it's, it's very desirable. We were very lucky that way because when we started out, I really didn't have to do a lot of advertisement. Um, I started out on Udemy, which I know a lot of your guests don't like Udemy and don't use Udemy, but for us, it's been great. Uh, for us, we were on Udemy and because we put out good quality courses in a topic that students were searching for, they found those courses. And then when they passed one exam with us, they decided, hey, when I have another exam to take, I'll go back to Jason again. And so we got a lot of repeat buyers that way. And that kind of built up our brand, um, where I know a lot of people, otherwise, they will have one course and funnel all their traffic towards that. Uh, for instance, your piano in 21 days is a great example right. of that you have one course to sell, and you have all the funnels and the automation set up, and you just go everybody towards that one course. Uh, for us, we've had lots and lots of courses. Um, our highest point was about 30 courses running at once. Right now, we have about 20 courses running at once. And so there's just a lot of different topics that we teach, and all those little drops add up to a big drop in the, in the end of the day. 20 courses, up to 30 courses at one point. Yes. <laughs> so you first came on the podcast, I would guess, about two years ago, and you weren't, you weren't even close to a $22 million a year business no. at that point, right? What was, the big, what was the big tipping point? What was the big change for you in your business? Um, so we had a couple of things that have added to our business uh, and our business revenue. So back then, we were exclusively on Udemy. We didn't really have a lot going on off Udemy. Um, and Udemy is still a big part of our business, but at the time, it was probably 90 to 95% of our revenue. Now, it's about 40 to 50% of our revenue, but it's not because it's gone down. It's because our other side of the business has increased so much. Uh, so that was one of the big things. So as we started doing things off of Udemy on our own website, we've been able to grow that. Uh, we've expanded our product lines a little bit. So in addition to selling the exam course, in addition to selling the courses that we sell, we also sell the exam vouchers for it. So I know you used to be a project manager and you took your PMP, you took a course and you paid $500 or $1,000 for the course. And then you paid another $500 or $1,000 for the exam voucher to go take the exam. Mm -hmm. Since we're now an official partner with the different certifications that we teach, we sell those exam vouchers as well. And that uh, for each one, we make a percentage of profit on that. That adds to our revenue as well. And that also gives another reason for our students from Udemy to go to our website because on Udemy, we can't sell the vouchers. So they can buy the course there and then they go, oh, I need the voucher. They'll go to our site, buy the voucher. Then they get that discount on the voucher for them. We also get their email. We can then retarget them again later on for additional sales. 
And so all of those type of things have all worked together to kind of continue to expand this business over and over. And then the other thing is just, I know you've talked about several times in your podcast, student success. For us, everything comes down to student success. If the students take our course and they pass the exam, they're going to come back to us when they need to go again. And most of these people work in a place like an IT environment where there's 30 or 40 other employees in the same area, and they all need that same certification. So when somebody goes, oh, I heard you just passed your Security Plus, who'd you use? Oh, I use Jason. And then they come to our site and they buy it. So those type of things have really expanded for us. If you go on Reddit, for instance, and you look for Security Plus, you're going to find one of three people mentioned. Usually the first three names that come up is either Jason Dion, Mike Myers, or Professor Messer. And because of that, anytime somebody asks, who should I take? Our name is one of those top three, and that just drives a lot of traffic that we don't have to pay for that traffic because it's all natural. Yeah, I love it. As you know, I talk about student success a lot. That's the exact reason for that. You can't have a a successful online course business long term unless your students, unless student success is is kind of the primary focus of what you're trying to do. I got into this originally mainly because of the lower passive income, but now I can see the impact of the work that I'm doing, and that's really what drives me. And I'm guessing that's you know you would kind of be in the same boat there. I mean, what what motivates you to keep growing this thing? Is it the is it seeing the success of your students? Yeah, for us, it's always comes down to student success. So hearing back from our students that they passed their exam, that they got a new job, that they've made that career change, those are the kind of things that just make me and my team really, really excited and happy. Um, it's a lot more exciting to have that happen than to reach a certain dollar figure per month or a certain dollar figure per year, for example. Do you advertise? We do now. Um, we only advertise one of our courses, one single product that we advertise. And that is more of an experiment. I'm actually using... Um, uh, conversion. I knew this. Yes. Yeah. You I, use the same girl that I use. Yes. I, I came to you and asked for advice on who should I use, yeah. and, and you recommended um, a conversion owl, and so we went and signed up with them, and we've been using them for about six months now. Um, and it's been mm-hmm. going well. So our cost to convert is about sixty dollars per student on a product that we make about one hundred and seventy on. And for us, the reason why we advertise just the one product is that is our biggest selling product. It is the product line that has the highest markup for us uh, or highest revenue, I guess is the best way to say that. And it's also the entry to a course series of about five other courses. So once they mm-hmm. pass that course, they then can go into the higher levels as well. So if I can get somebody in, and as long as it costs me less than $169, I break even on that person or make money on that person, and then I can resell to them later. And, and so it becomes a really good place to... It's more of an experiment with marketing, um, but it wasn't something that we've done a lot of in the past. Yeah. Not, not many people making bringing in $2 million a year in revenue are probably spending as little on advertising <laughs> as you are, if I had to guess. Yeah, I think last month we spent about $3,000 on Facebook ads, and that was about it. So oh my we, goodness. We really haven't done a whole lot of, of uh, advertising, and, and we're slowly ramping that up as we're targeting and playing with it and seeing what works. Yeah, it's great to have a diversified in- income stream and not be fully reliant on the ads. I spend probably about 10000 a month across four platforms, four advertising platforms, and I'm about a one million a year business, not two. <laughs> but there are people whose like only traffic sources are are ads, and they've got to they've got to maintain that two three ROI to to even have a business. You know exactly, so, and that's one of the things that becomes dangerous because if you get to the point where you have to spend money to make money, but you run out, you maybe you ran a bad ad campaign and you blew through your ad budget. Now you don't have money to push in to make money, right? And so you can really trip yourself up if you're not careful with it. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, if you really focus on student success, even if most of your traffic, at least initially, is with advertising, in a case like yours where you've got these, these professionals that are in departments with 30 other people that could be a candidate for your course, if it's that good, 
then maybe the first person got in via ads, but then you got 29 more coming in because that's how good your course was. Exactly. And so for us, we see a lot of that where one person turns into five or 10 or 15 others. Or what we see a lot of times, we'll get somebody who from HR calls us up and says, hey, we want to buy 50 copies of your course because Johnny in, in IT took it and passed. And so now we want the whole team to take it. And so the company will now come to us and buy it. So that's uh, been an interesting thing for us because we never targeted corporate clients like that. But we've had to start building processes around how do we deal with corporate clients because they start coming to us and we just didn't know how to handle them otherwise. Yeah. So man, when I, when I listened to uh, Tony Robbins speak back in February, one thing that really jumped out at me, one thing he said was, if you don't have some sort of automated referral system in place for your business, then you are basically crazy, <laughs> right? He asked for people to like raise their hands in the audience. There's 5,000 people there of who had one and like 10 people raised their hand out of 5,000, right? So referrals are, are big in your business. Are you doing anything other than just making a great course? Are you incentivizing people? Are you asking for referrals? What, what are you doing? So uh, we're crazy because we don't. <laughs> uh, it's, it's something that's been on my list of to do. Yeah. We, have not, we don't have an affiliate program. We don't have any kind of incentive for students to refer us. Generally, just happy customers tell other happy customers is what's happened for us. So we've just been more, word of mouth. We already have a sequence in place where at the end of the course, we do ask for testimonials. We do ask for reviews and things like that. Um, but we haven't gone the next step of, hey, go tell your friends and we'll give you $10 off your next purchase. That's one of the things we're working towards. Um, we're in the middle of figuring out where we're going to move our courses in the future platforms. And so I haven't done that yet until we get the courses moved and that'll be part of the new course system. Great. Yeah, I want to talk about the platforms for sure. <laughs> but let me, maybe a good segue to that is, you know, when we first talked a couple of years ago, Pretty much all your courses were on Udemy, yep. and you you were kind of in the middle, or you were starting that transition to to move off platform because there there's a lot of pros to be on, on Udemy, but there's a lot of cons to be on on Udemy as well. Fast forward to today, and you're making it work, both work. Like, are, do you just have all 20 courses in both places, or how are you making your own platform and Udemy work together? Yeah, so that's a, a great question because when we talked the first time I came on your show, um, you were helping me kind of figure out how to start this whole funnel thing and do things off Udemy. And we were off Udemy. We were using Thinkific at the time. And what we had done then was we took all of our courses and we threw them all on our website through Thinkific. And we were charging, I think, $10 or $15 a month. It was kind of a all-you-can-watch Netflix-style course. So that was the difference. Udemy, you'd buy it and you own it. And on our site, you would pay a monthly fee. And as soon as you stopped paying the fee, you lost access. And that worked okay, but it really became hard for students to see what was the difference. So we ended up not doing that as we moved on. Uh, about six months after that, we canceled that program and we moved on to LearnDash as a platform. And we can talk about different platforms later, but we moved to the new platform and we decided not to do the membership model. And so instead, what we've done is we've made a different course on each platform. And what I mean by different is there's different features in each course. So it's kind of Udemy is the generic do-it-yourself model. And then our site has a little bit more in-depth, a little bit more hands-on instruction, and it also comes with a guarantee. And so the difference is on Udemy, you might pay $10 or $15 for the course on sale. On our site, you're going to pay $250 for that same course. The videos are exactly the same. The difference is on our site, we control the entire experience. So in addition to the videos, they're getting the quizzes, they're getting the study guide, they're getting the practice exams, and we also have 40 hours of hands-on labs that we integrate in. So as you're going through and learning how to be a cybersecurity analyst, you click on a button, it opens an environment, and you're actually manipulating a computer and reading logs and searching logs and doing the analysis and learning how to do this stuff on the job. So it's a little bit different experience than you'd have on Udemy, where Udemy is more like a, I guess in your system, you have the workbook and then you have the video course as your premium offer. 
it, it's kind of like that for us. Udemy is the basic version, and then our site is the premium experience. From what you've just said, the way I would put it is uh, along the lines of something I've been saying a lot lately, and that's transformation over information, right? To yes. me, if somebody just wants the information, they're going to get that in the course on Udemy. But if they want actual transformation and an experience, then that's what you're offering for 25 times the price yep. over and, on and your own site. And not everybody's going to pay 25 times the price, right? And, and it sounds really weird that you could buy this thing for 10 or $15 or this other thing for $250. But the difference is these people are usually taking this to get a job and to pass an exam. To pass that exam, that exam costs $350 every time you take it. So if you're going to take it and possibly pass it using the information of our course plus a couple other people's courses, or you want this all-in-one package that has everything you need, uh, for a lot of people, that just makes a lot more sense. And one of the things we do with that $250 version is we have a guarantee that if you finish our course within 60 days of buying it, then if you fail the exam, we buy your retake voucher. And so mm. really, it makes it like, hey, that's a no-brainer. I'm getting you know, past guarantee here. I'm going to do that. So it really does help uh, convince the students. And the reason we do that is because we know it's a better product. It will get them the goal they want. We have a very low failure rate of people who've gone through that course that failed the exam. Got it. So it's not uncommon for people to have kind of two offers or multiple offers within the same course. I mean, right now, yeah. I've got three. I might turn it into two here in a couple of months. I'm still playing with some things. But it's in that nice pricing chart where you can see what you're getting in this package, what you're getting in that package. That's not uncommon. What is a little uncommon is you kind of have that going, but on two totally different places, right? Yes. Yep. That's a little weird, I would say. Now, how, do, how does Udemy feel about your business model? And are you, are you directing people to your site from Udemy in any way? Yeah. So we actually work with Udemy very closely and they actually like the way that we've set up our business model from the people that we've talked with. And the reason is we're not in direct competition with them. A lot of people, when they, the old model that we did, where we took all of our courses and made it a membership model, that's actually competing with Udemy directly, right? Mm -hmm. You're getting the exact same course, the exact same experience. The only difference is who you're paying. In that case, it's not really great for Udemy and they wouldn't like you directing people off the site. In our case, because we're offering a complimentary product or something that you can't get on Udemy, it's not really a conflict. Uh, and we actually send a lot of people from our site back to Udemy. I send thousands of students back to Udemy every single month. Um, and the reason is a lot of students don't want to spend the $250, right? They'd rather spend $10 and that's okay. I'll take your, your business either way because I want to help you get the goal and get you passed. And so we do have a page on our site. If you go to deontrain.com slash Udemy, that lists every single Udemy course we have with links directly to it. And we send people back over. In addition to that, we actually have at the bottom of that page explaining, you know, what's the difference between these Udemy courses and the Dion training courses. So that way they can understand as a student which one they should purchase and why. Um, I send a lot of people back to Udemy. And frankly, for people who want to be able to have that informational experience, there's Udemy is a great place. You can learn a lot of stuff for $10 or $15. But if you want that transformation, then sometimes you need a little bit more handholding. You need a little bit more of the group one-on-ones. You need more of the hands-on labs or you know those type of experiences that come with that premium price tag. So what do you think would happen if you just turned off the Udemy part of your business? I think it would actually hurt us, right? Because a lot of what we get from our students is because of Udemy. We are where we are because of starting on Udemy. Udemy gave us such a big uh, push because Udemy spends millions and millions of dollars on advertisements every year. They spend 50 or $100 million or something crazy like that, right? On all these Facebook ads and TV ads and everything else to bring people to the site. And then when they searched for products and they found ours, that is what made people know my name. Before that, I couldn't have had that reach without them. On Udemy, we've sold almost 250,000 students over there. 
And that's 250,000 people who have taken one of my courses and now go out and say, I took Jason's course. It was awesome. Go buy it, right? And a lot of those people, when they type in you know, Jason Dion you know, course, it'll pop up with my site or Udemy's depending on who has the better Google at the time. A lot of times, actually, Udemy comes up ahead of my own site, which is kind of unique, but um, they just have such a large audience that that happens. We make really good money on Udemy and we help a lot of people on Udemy and we have a, a reach around the world that we wouldn't have otherwise. So for us, we really love our partnership with Udemy and you know, we don't have any plans to leave them anytime soon. There are some things we can't do on Udemy based on the way their, their courses are designed. We can't put that lab product inside of Udemy. They just don't have that capability yet. Mm-hmm. They control how long your course can be or how short your course can be. They control how many exams you can put in the course. So those are things that you're kind of, you have to fit into their model. And if you don't, that's when I kind of go onto my own site and do what I want to do on my own site. So it works for us. Um, and then earlier you had asked, you know, do we send people off of Udemy back to our own site? We do tell students to join our Facebook group, which is in our first video on Udemy. So we say, hey, if you want additional uh, free content, you know, helping help with other students, come over to our Facebook group. We've got twenty five or thirty thousand people there. That's one way that we get people off of Udemy into our group, and we give them additional support there. In addition to that, we then can let them know about upcoming sales either on Udemy or on our own site. And that's one way we would get people off. If people go from Udemy to buy the exam voucher at our site, we obviously get their email address at that point. And that gives us the ability to market to them. And even that, you know, we send a lot of students back to Udemy. I, set, I do two promos every month to Udemy and I send that to my mailing list. I have 25 to 30,000 people on my mailing list. And I advertise to them, hey, there's this sale on Udemy. You can get the course for 10 or $12. Here's the link. And so it really works out well with Udemy where they're sending us traffic and we're sending them traffic. And so it really is a symbiotic relationship for us. So I have your next course idea. It's not, I mean, it's not really congruent with your existing branding, but I think you've really nailed having, making your courses work on both Udemy and your own platform at the same time. And I don't, maybe you know somebody, but I don't know of anybody doing it quite like you're doing it. And it sounds like it works really well. Yeah, I, I only know one other person uh, that I could think of that's doing something similar. Most of the Udemy instructors I know that try to do something off Udemy end up being in this almost competitive mode where they have the exact same courses offering the exact same thing. Yeah, And I don't think that's healthy because when you start directing everybody, if you want to be successful on Udemy and you start directing everybody to your own website instead of to Udemy, what you're doing is actually cutting the algorithm. And the algorithm, it knows that the more traffic that's being sent to a course, the more you get higher in the search results. Just like Amazon, the more people who buy your product, the higher in the rankings you're going to go. And so if you start sending everybody to your own website instead of to Udemy, then what happens is you'll start following the rankings and that's kind of the spiral of death at that point. So for us, we never wanted that to happen. And so we always continue to send students to Udemy because again, not everybody wants to spend 250 or $500 on a course. Some people just need the information. Just like I buy a lot of textbooks and I'll spend 25 or $30 for that textbook, read it and pass the exam. That works for me. Other students need somebody to hold their hand and go to a $3,000 in-person course. There's different price points and different experiences for different students and what they need. That's really cool, man. So at this point, you have roughly 20 courses. I'm sure you're familiar with like the 80-20 principle, right? Yeah. So is it possible that like 80% of your revenue is only coming from 20% of your courses and you can eliminate like 16 of them? No, that's how we got from 34 to 20. (laughs) Uh, I went through and pretty much anything that was making less than $500 a month got cut. We said that we decided it wasn't worth maintaining those courses and continuing to Because the problem is with what we teach, we're not teaching piano here. Um, Things change every two to three years. We've got to refilm all of our courses. And so when we had 34 courses, it was becoming very difficult to keep everything up to date and to do it at a high quality. So as we started looking, we ranked all of our courses from number of students and and revenue. And those at the bottom, we started counting from the bottom up. And we found that pretty much anything that was $500 or less, we decided to cut because that was $6,000 a year per course, which I know a lot of people would love to have $6,000 a year extra. But honestly, 
the amount of work that we were spending and the diversion that it was causing versus where we could focus on other courses, it didn't make it worth it. Um, we have some courses on Udemy that do five and $10,000 a month uh, for one course. So it just depends on, on the course. And then the other thing is a lot of my things that we did, we restructured so that we have three pipelines of courses. So I have a cybersecurity path, I have a, a service management path, and I have a project management path. And each of those has between five and seven courses in that path. And so even though maybe number three in the service, you know, the cybersecurity path might not sell as well, I'm not going to get rid of it because it would make this hole between one through seven. And so we keep that. And so that's kind of how we decided to keep what we were going to keep and what we were going to get rid of. Yeah. I mean, it's a totally different business model than mine, right? Yes. <laughs> I, ha- I have one course, basically. One yeah. course, one piano course. And to your point, like technology of piano hasn't really changed in the last 300 years other than... <laughs> They became digital at some point, or some of them did, but that doesn't really affect how you play them for the most part. So I can only imagine keeping up with technology-based courses and 20 of them, but I know you have a pretty dialed-in process to do that, and I want to get into that at some point. But let's go ahead and talk about course platforms, because as you know, you're, I mean, you're a listener to the podcast, you know that I'm actively searching for another platform to host my online course, my online piano course on. And the reason is, is because my course has been on ClickFunnels for about four years, and they have just not progressed very much. It looks exactly the same today, all the same features today as they had four years ago. And for those starting out, I still don't think it's a bad platform because it's very, very simple. It's got modules, it's got lessons, it's got videos, you can have text, you can have attachments. It's got the bare bones. But now that I'm at a certain level, I want to serve my students in, in a whole new way it's not going to cut it for me and my business going forward. So I'm actively looking for what is the best platform for my business going forward. I want to get into like the different categories of platforms, what you look for in a platform. But to set that up, you started on Udemy. Then you said when you went to your own platform, you went to Thinkific. Yes. But then you went to LearnDash, right? Yes. And so you're on LearnDash now, but, but you said you're also thinking about going back to Thinkific too. So where I explained kind of where I am in the process, where are you in the process as far as looking for a new platform? Yeah. So for us, uh, I kind of had my final straw with LearnDash this last week. Their customer service let me down and I'm very upset with them uh, and I let them know that. And so for that reason, we started looking again of where we wanted to end up. And the real, the last nail in the coffin for me with LearnDash was every time they do an update, it breaks something else. And this is very common because LearnDash is built on WordPress. So it's a bunch of different plugins that interact with each other. And if WordPress gets updated and LearnDash doesn't upgrade properly, something will break. If LearnDash upgrades and Uncanny Owl, which does the group membership, doesn't upgrade at the same time, something will break. It's just it's a, it's a piecemeal of a bunch of things. And there's sometimes things get broken. In this case, LearnDash did an update. And the update made it so that when somebody goes through the course now, every time it loads the next video, the student has to hit hit the unmute button or the video starts playing muted. And when I asked customer support about this, they said, oh, well, that's because it's a anti-ad thing and they're trying to prevent this from you know, annoying students. And I'm like, well, it's a horrible student, ex- student experience because I have some courses that are 40 hours long and have 300 videos. And they're going to watch a video for three or four minutes and they won't be able to hit play and walk away and just let it keep playing while they're sitting there watching it while they're on the couch or yeah. something. Yeah. And now every three or four minutes, they got to come back and hit the unmute button. And they said, well, this is just how it is. And I'm like, well, Udemy doesn't do that. LinkedIn Learning doesn't do that. Thinkific and Teachable don't do that. So why are you guys doing that? And they said, well, if you don't like it, you can go hire a custom developer to go fix it. And I've done that for several other issues I've had with them over the last 18 months. But it just was one of those things that like, I shouldn't have to solve these problems. I'm not the <laughs> LMS coder. That's their job to do that. And this is a customer experience thing that I can't imagine anybody wants. 
And the, the explanation we got was just horrible. So that made me start looking around again of, okay, what else is out there? And so I've looked at all the different platforms. And at the end of the day, we decided to go back to Thinkific. The reason we left Thinkific in the first place was that I felt there was two areas that Thinkific was lacking back when I left them. And when I left them 18 months ago, we weren't doing much volume on our own site. And so I wasn't, I didn't want to invest a bunch of money into it. And to get to the level of where I could do some custom development on Thinkific, I would have to be at the $400 to $500 a month level. And so I moved over to LearnDash because it was $200 a year, plus you pay for your own hosting. And so we, we made the move and then we found that we needed bigger hosting to support it. And now we're up to hosting that cost me $800 a month, plus the $200 a year for LearnDash, plus you know another $100 here and $100 there. And all these things add up for all these different plugins to make it do what you want it to do. The two areas that I found that were lacking in Thinkific back when I was on the $99 a month plan was their quizzes and exams. Their quizzes, as soon as you hit yes or no to the, the question, it gives you the answer. It doesn't do it in a certification mode like you'd take on a certification exam. And it doesn't allow timed exams, which are both features that my students like. And then the other one was it didn't have a way for me to integrate in those labs because that requires an API call and they wouldn't let you make external API calls. In the higher level plan that Thinkific has now, they've evolved over the last 18 months and done a lot of improvements. And they do now have the ability to integrate in with a third-party exam provider called Brilliant, which is like $70 a month that does all the exam stuff that I want. And they also have the API access either in or out of Thinkific if you're at the $400 a month plan. So that's the plan we're going to go with. It's the, I think it's called the premier plan, I think is what they call it. And uh, a lot of people go, oh, $400 a month is too much. But right now we're paying $800 a month. And this includes hosting and videos and everything else. And it's an all-in-one system that is just much more together. And so when something breaks, at least they know where to look. Because the other problem I found with LearnDash is a lot of times LearnDash would point the finger at somebody else and somebody else would point the finger at LearnDash. And we had to get three or four companies together to kind of figure out whose problem was it when something broke because it's all these puzzle pieces that were being slammed together. Yeah. And that's that makes sense. And I know a lot of people look up LearnDash and see, oh, it's $150, $200 a year versus, okay, Thinkific, Teachable, Kajabi, all those are like $97, $147 a month. LearnDash is the way to go, but you forget about hosting costs you forget about potential problems of just Word, it's WordPress. So all these plugins are trying to work together. You mentioned the problems with certain updates here and there. So there's pros and cons, just like pros and cons of Udemy. There's pros and cons to all of this as well. As I've been looking at different platforms, the biggest thing, the biggest drawback to Thinkific or one of the biggest drawbacks, and maybe you could correct me on this, is I don't see any sort of community aspect to Thinkific. So is that right? They do have a, they do have a community aspect because that was actually that was the next thing we were going to add to our site in, in LearnDash. We wanted to add a, a, a community aspect to it. We we're going to use Tribe and integrate that in. Mm-hmm. And Thinkific does have a community. That's one of the features they've added over the last 18 months. So that's where you're you going to... Be, your yeah, community is going to live the, there. Yes. And I think you have to be on the growth plan, I think it is. Um, so there's the pro plan. And then there's the growth, which has a bunch of the extra features. So the pro plan is like 99 a month. And the growth, I think, is like $10 per, or $0.10 cents per student. Mm-hmm. So that can start adding up pretty quickly. For us, we have about 12,000 students in our site. But if you're on the next level up, which is that 399 plan, that comes with unlimited students. So that's where we went. It gives you all the features for mm-hmm. all the students, including the communities. And you can have community vote based on the entire site, as well as individual ones based on cohort or based on course. Um, the other thing I liked about Thinkific was under each lesson, there's the ability to have discussions under each lesson. Mm-hmm. So if they're watching day number three in your course and somebody's having a problem with, I don't know, whatever piano technique, they can comment right under there and other students can help them out directly under that video. So it is a much more integrated experience than what we've been seeing in LearnDash, as well as what I've seen in uh, places like Teachable as well. So the categories 
of course platforms. Here's here's my assessment. You tell me what you think, right? So we have we have um, what do we call it? like the Thinkifics and the and the Teachables? Those would be what, what what category would you put the, would you put those in? I consider those basically a software as a service. They're kind of these all in one, do everything, not real customizable unless you go to the really high plan. So it's it's a great beginner interface and really easy to use. Right. So you don't have to be a techie to make those things work. Right. So that's one category, and that's that's the most popular type. In fact, I did a poll of my audience, uh, the online course community uh, Facebook group recently. Hey, what platform are you on? And the number one answer, I'm sure you saw this, was Thinkific. And so that that was top. I think number two was was Teachable. Number three, I think, was Learn Dash. That was probably your vote because that's where you are right now. So those Teachable, Thinkifics, you know, SaaS, all in one platform types. That's one category. Okay. Another category I would say is these marketplaces where Udemy is probably at the top, but we have Skillshare, Linda, like there's a a lot of them, but Udemy is probably the top one. Is that a fair second category? Yeah, I would say those are the, um, you know, kind of the the platforms where you're going to go is Udemy, Skillshare, LinkedIn Learning, Safari Books has one out there, Pack Publishing has one out there. There's a bunch of those, but yeah, yes, that that same, where they they kind of host all the content and take care of finding the students for you Mm -hmm. and you just provide the content. Yes. And I think even like Tony Robbins and a couple other guys just released one of their own, uh, mastermind, mastermind.com. Okay. Have you heard of this one? I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah. That's more of a marketplace like a Udemy as well. So there's that kind. And then I would put the, the, the WordPress plugins in their own category as well. I would say those are the three main types of uh, categories of platforms. Do you agree? Yeah, I think so. And learn that. Dash is probably the most well-known of the WordPress ones out there, but there is a ton of different ones out there uh, for WordPress, and they all have pluses and minuses. The one thing I found is that when you're dealing with the WordPress plugins, they tend to be a lot slower, or, and you have to have much higher hosting capabilities to be able to do it. And the other thing is there's just a lot of hidden costs that you just don't see because you got to buy all these other technical pieces. Yeah. For instance, you can't host your videos on the WordPress site. Yes. That would just slow your entire site to a crawl. So now you got to buy... Wistia or Vimeo or something like that, which is another twenty to fifty dollars a month. And so all these little things start adding up uh, over time and just add more complexity to your business. Yeah, I agree. So if those are the three main categories, the marketplaces, we've kind of talked about pros and cons there. The biggest thing is that you you're kind of forced into what they want you to do. You have to sell them for around ten dollars. The pros are that they do a lot of the marketing for you. These uh, these SaaS all in one platforms, they make things kind of easy. They they specialize in courses. And in a lot of cases, you can white label it. It can live on your own domain. It's not like they have to go to udemy.com to find your course. They're going to pianoin21days.com or you know courses.deontraining.com. And, and things are kind of easy, but you're still kind of locked into their features. And then over on the WordPress side, you've got uh, like LearnDash, uh, some of the other ones that I've looked into, Lifter LMS. I think there's one called like Tutor LMS. And, and by the way, LMS just stands for Learning Management System. That's kind of the overall category that we're talking about here. There's a lot more customization, uh, uh, things that are customizable when you go to the WordPress route, but we've hit on some of the cons as well. Yep. It doesn't and sound like lot, any of the categories are perfect. Too. Yeah, they're harder to use. You got to be more of an expert there. Yeah. So for instance, in the LearnDash group last night, I was in the Facebook group and uh, somebody posted, Hey, I just bought LearnDash. I downloaded it. What do I do now? I'm like, <laughs> if that's where you are, you are not right for LearnDash. Um, it is complex and it's not going to be for you. So yeah, it's, there is no perfect solution, right? Um, and then yeah. I guess the fourth thing is completely custom. You can hire somebody to go build you something. Yeah. And that's what Udemy did, right? And that's what LinkedIn Learning did. And But those things cost tons and tons of money. 
And, and so there, there is no perfect solution is what I found as I've started looking through all these different areas. And it's just a matter of which one checks the most boxes for you yeah. and meets the, the critical must-haves and will be the easiest for you to maintain over time. That's the other thing is like LearnDash is great because you can do whatever you want with it because it's open source, right? You can go in and change whatever code you want, and make it do whatever you want if you're a developer yeah. or if you want to hire a developer. Uh, but that gets expensive. And then every time there's an update, you got to figure out what code changes you made versus what code changes they made and integrate that back in. And so it just becomes more complex. I really think that first category, when you start talking about Teachables and Thinkifics and uh, even Mighty Networks would go in that category, they all have the ability for a layperson to be able to just go in and create an online course. Yeah. So I think for most people, that's probably the right answer of where to be. And the other nice thing about them is they're all inclusive. So even some like Kajabi, right? They have everything from email and automations to course management all in one platform for you. So it just depends on what your needs are. And uh, if you want something that does one thing really well, or if you want something that does everything in one bucket. Very interesting. So I mentioned the community about Thinkific. It sounds like that does exist. I must have missed that. What about this? This is kind of like my ultimate dream feature is to be able to package all of this up and turn it into a mobile app. Because my audience, the average age is about 60 years old. And I'm telling you that demographic loves apps. And I've gotten a lot of feedback that if there was a Piano in 21 Days app where they didn't have to go to the browser, you know, a lot of people are accessing my course from their phone already. Go to the browser, hit member login, you know, do this whole thing. If they could just go straight to the app, that would be a significantly better experience for people. So I would like some something that has course community in the same place and also be able to turn it into an app. I don't think Thinkific can do that, correct? No. So Thinkific doesn't have an app integration to it. Thinkific does have mobile first design right. in their web browsing. So if you go on your phone, it will look great and it will act great. So there's really no need for an app in that case. Uh, if you go to Teachable, they do have an app. And so if you have a host that's hosted on Teachable, uh, they can download the Teachable app and then they can download your videos and watch it on there. Uh, I have a couple of friends who are on there and I, I've taken their courses through that app. On LearnDash, you can hire somebody to make an app that will integrate with LearnDash and track their progress and do all of that, which we actually did when we moved to LearnDash. We were all excited about it. We spent a bunch of money on this, about five to $10,000 on building these apps. And when it came time to release them, Apple wouldn't let us put it in the app store. You know why? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> so Apple has this silly rule that everything that has something that's sold must be sold through iTunes, yes. right? It has to be in-app purchases. And so they would not let our app be published, even though all we wanted the app for was not to sell anything. The app was just for, when you logged into the app, the first thing that came up was login, username and password. If you didn't already buy on my website, the app was useless to you. We just wanted to support our students yeah. so they could download the videos and take them on the go. And Apple would not let us do that. And so we were going to, we were faced with another $5,000 of programming fees to get in-app purchases. And then Apple keeps 30% of the money. Yeah. And for us on those courses, we were integrating them with our exam vouchers. We only had a 35% markup on those. Yeah. So if we had paid 30% to them, we'd make 5% per course. I was like, that's stupid. We're not doing that. So we pulled both apps and we, we stopped offering apps because of that. And I don't understand how Apple can get away with this, honestly. I think that's one of the reasons why in Congress right now, they're grilling Apple and going after them <laughs> for being anti-competitive. But yeah, we have the exact same app for Google and Google put it in the Play Store, but Apple would not. And so we decided to cancel the apps and move down. Yeah. Of that. I mean, the reason they can get away with it is that it's their platform. Almost everybody has an iPhone. I, I don't know about you. I don't. But uh, for reasons like that, that's a no. Yeah, you have an iPhone, right? And the average user of an iPhone couldn't care, would, will never make an app, will never have a, a developer account, and doesn't even know the 30% thing exists. And so they're going to continue downloading apps and buying apps and 
they couldn't care less about that side of it. And so when their user base, you know, they're passionate about their users too, but also making profits. And so I get it from their perspective. I don't like it at all, especially as somebody who's interested in putting an app out there in the next few months, hopefully. I don't like it, but I understand it. Yeah, what we were going to end up having to do is if we went that route was instead of charging 300 for that course on our site, we would have charged $500 on yeah. the app. And so then the student would be like, well, why did I pay $500 to the app when I bought it from you for 300 And that was the only way around it. I just personally, I just felt it was too wrong and we just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to have that kind of negative experience for a student. Well, it's, it's very similar to what's happening. I, I don't know if this is a, a national or global thing, but I know uh, here where I live, you know, these uh, food delivery apps, right? Waiter, yep. DoorDash and everything. I've never run a restaurant, owned a restaurant, but, but apparently margins are fairly low. And, and when those companies, those apps take a large portion of the, the revenue for themselves, like it doesn't leave very, very much for, for the restaurant owner. So I know restaurants around here have kind of switched which apps, they're, which service they're using based on who's giving the best deal. What I've noticed lately is what what restaurants are doing is that they're just marking up their prices in those apps versus if you just call the restaurant or go to the restaurant, right? So, yep. one of my favorite places around the corner is Mexican place. You know, it's normally like eight dollars for queso, which is expensive, like chips and queso, eight dollars. <laughs> I went on the app the other day; it was twelve dollars. Yep, and that's just because they know that the, you know DoorDash or whoever it was, Uber Eats, was marking it up, so they marked it up. And at the end of the day, is that the best experience for the customer? Uh, you know, probably not. Yeah, it's, and, it's, and it's like it's I think interesting. Twenty five percent is what they keep on those, from what I've heard. So, uh, and I kind of get it because they have to run the service for it. At least there, you're actually getting a little bit of service out of, out of it because you Uber Eats and DoorDash, they actually have a service component to it where they're actually running the service, collecting the order, sending it in, and things like that. But yeah, it, it's it, it's one of those things that you know you're paying for convenience, I guess. But for us, we just decided that wasn't worth it for us, and we just decided, okay, no app. And when students ask why there's no app, I say. Go complain to Apple. <laughs> well, I might be that right there with you in a few months, but I'm 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 kind of hard headed too, a little stubborn. So I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can make it work. But I still don't know which which platform necessarily how I'm gonna make it happen. I just feel like it's gonna be possible one way or another. Now, knowing uh, knowing what you know about me and, and some of the goals I've mentioned, like you know, there, there's not many people I know that know more about all the different platforms than you. And and we've t- we've spoken offline a lot about platforms. That's why I wanted to get into this a little bit. Knowing what you know about me, like which platform would you recommend for Piano in 21 Days? So I think for Piano in 21 Days, you'd be good with either something like Teachable or Thinkific, whichever one's going to work as far as pricing, because you're not dealing with a lot of exams or quizzes or things like that. So either of those are going to be fairly equivalent. They'll host your videos, they'll give a good course experience, and they'll have a good mobile experience. Either of those won't give you a dedicated app, though, that has Piano in 21 Days. Teachable will give you an app but it is just the Teachable app and they'll use their user The Teachable app, not the Piano in 21 Days app. That's true, yep. So that's one of the downsides. Now, the other way you can do it is you can basically hire an app developer to just create a course in a box app for you that doesn't touch your actual site. So you basically have two things, right? You'd have people who are on the app and people who are on the site, but they wouldn't really link together. That's not good either. (laughs) Yeah, so really the only one that I know of that would integrate well between an app and, and a course would be something like LearnDash because it does have that customization, but then you're buying yourself into all of those other problems that come with it. So I would probably try to convince you not to go an app. That's what I would do. <laughs> I just don't see the biggest benefit here in the app for you where, over a mobile website yeah. where you just teach people, hey, if you want to add this on your phone and have a button on the front, just teach them how to use the add to home screen button. And it looks like an app. And when they click it, it opens a web browser and brings them to your site. 
So um, that's another way of doing it without having to spend a ton of money. <laughs> it just, you know what? <laughs> Not what you wanted to hear, I'm sure. <laughs> well, you know what? I It's just my personality. That to me just sounds like a challenge, Jason. I'm going to launch <laughs> my app and be like, you're the first person I'm going to call. Like, yeah. Jason, look, in my apps in the Apple uh, App Store, I told you I could do it. Mm-hmm. Now I'll probably... Well, actually, you know what? You probably could do it with Thinkific if you're on the 399 plan. Because on the 399 plan, really? they have API access. They have API can, calls, yeah. Right. So if you had the app developer make the app and call into the app, call into the through the API. I'm not sure if they have that with the community yet, but I'm pretty sure you can pull the videos that way, the quizzes that way, the progress that way, the student experience that way. But you'd have to look in to see if they actually integrate into the community as well, because I think that's going to be one of the big pieces you want to add. Yes. The other thing they do have now is they do have the ability to integrate in Zoom. So you can do live sessions for your weekly calls mm-hmm. um, and things like that as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll look into that. But but at the same time, we're still looking at a pretty custom development, you know, 10, 20 grand to, to have somebody completely customize an app that ties into Thinkific in that case. So yep. like I said, 20 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago, no perfect solution. There is no perfect solution. Yeah. But if one's out <laughs> there, I'm going to find it, Mr. Dion. <laughs> so you are, you've made the decision to move back to yeah. Thinkific. Yep. I can only imagine what that process is going to be like for you, your team, and your customers. Have you thought that through? Yes. Uh, so we've done this move before. We've actually moved three times now over the time we've had customers. Uh, and it's painful <laughs> each and <Yeah>. every time. <laughs> I will tell you that. So what we're doing is we have uh, my team is going through and they're going to build out all the courses in Thinkific first. Then what we start doing is we start turning on sales access so all new customers go to the new site. So they'll be going into Thinkific. Then we have to start working on migrating over. The easiest people to migrate over are people who have 0% progress or 100% progress because those can all be done programmatically. We can just say, give me all the users in this course that have 0%, move them over, creates new courses, sends them an email. The people that are more challenging are the ones who are kind of halfway in between a course. So those become a little bit more challenging. But we've, we've worked through this before. Before, when we had LearnDash, we moved over. We moved from Thinkific to LearnDash. That was kind of painful. Then we had a problem where LearnDash started slowing down so much because it was even on our server cluster, everything was accessing one central database. And that was a big uh, bottleneck. And so it was recommended that we split it up into three sites. So now we had three sites. So we have courses.deontrain.com, idle.deontrain.com, and prince2.deontrain.com. And so we ended up having to take those students and migrate them over and a lot of work on my staff's part of manually moving people over into the individual databases and keeping their progress. It, it is not a pleasant experience. And that's why we're trying to make this to be the last move and just get someplace where we can stay and have it set up for the long term. Yeah, but you thought you were doing that 18 months ago. (laughs) We did. We thought so. But yeah, it is is just one of those things that at some point you get to this point where... It's one of the things I found in my business a lot, actually. Uh, So I started out this business about four years ago, and I started by making a course and putting it on Udemy. And then I made another course and put it on Udemy, and another course and put it on Udemy. And over time, we just kept bolting on additional things. And it kind of started looking like Frankenstein. And so we've spent the last six months going through and cutting away a lot of garbage, cutting away a lot of things we don't think we should be doing anymore, reworking a lot of our systems and doing process improvement. I hired an online business manager who helped us through all that process, all that kind of stuff. And even still, we still have a bit of a Frankenstein, but it's not as ugly as it used to be. And our hope is as we do this move to Thinkific, which won't be until the beginning of the year, so a couple months from now, we're going to plan it out and start getting all the stuff in, in line. We are going to make sure that everything is kind of integrated nice and tightly because right now our experience from a user side they go through about seven different systems from the time they see us to the time they're actually in their course. And it's just, to me, that's a lot of handoffs uh, going through Zapier integrations, going through ActiveCampaign, going through Google Sheets to give them their vouchers, uh, going to LearnDash and WordPress to get them involved in the course, 
There's all sorts of places where things can break along the way. So we're trying to simplify that down, shorten the process out, and minimize the amount of systems we're dealing with. Okay. On that note, you know, I want to talk about Team Next, but on that note, real quick, one of the platforms that, in my opinion, kind of does the most and does it all pretty well is Kajabi. Yeah. J- j- based on what you just said, why not Kajabi for you? So for us, it was the exams. They don't have a good enough exam engine and they don't allow the integration from the API for our labs. So those are two things that we, we can't give up. That, that's what makes our courses the premium is the labs and the exams. So for us, that was, it was something we just couldn't, you know, like I said, got to check the most boxes yeah. and those two are boxes that are must haves. And those are the two boxes that were checked by Thinkific 18 months ago and they are now. Yes. Same two boxes. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about your team because I opened this conversation up at the beginning. Hey, you, you run an ultra successful online course business, 20 courses, but yet you work a full-time job and you have a family. And yeah. you know, we haven't even gotten into this yet, but you're, you're overseas right now on active duty, right? In the military. Yeah. Like, walk us through kind of your work situation, why you're still working, and then how, how you're able to run a successful business that way. Yeah. So I, uh, I work for the government. I've been working for the government for over 18 years now. And under our pension plan, if I don't make it to 20 years, I get zero. <laughs> and so it's, it's an all or nothing thing. I'm also under contract. Uh, I was under contract till my 19-year, two-month point. So if I stay for another 10 months, then I get my pension, which is half my pay for the rest of my life and medical care for the rest of my life. And so even if this whole online course thing just went completely away and did nothing, like it, it's nice to have your pension and be taken care of, right? So for us, it was kind of a decision that it, to save 10 months didn't really make sense. So I might as well yeah. stay till 20. So for us, that's where we are. So I'm in my last job that I'm working for the government. I'll be here until April 2022. And then I'll be retiring. Um, and I'll be doing courses full time. So right now, it's been a nights and weekends kind of thing for me with the courses. Yeah. And the way I've been able to do so much is finding things that other people can do. And anything that didn't need Jason, we outsourced at first. And then we brought on team members who take care of it. So if you email into our support team, most of the time, 99 times out of 100, you're not going to reach Jason. You're going to get one of my awesome people who have been working with me for two to three years now, and they know how to answer most of the questions. So, and if they can't answer it, then it goes to me. So let's, I want to get into the team thing, but first, where are you right now? I'm in Italy. Uh, so I'm living in Italy right now. My family happens to be living in Puerto Rico, which is where we are retiring to when I get out of Italy. And I am here on an unaccompanied tour because, again, I wasn't doing three full years. So with the government rules, they will only move your family over if you're going to be here for three years or longer. I'm only going to be here for 18 months. So therefore, I'm by myself. And I'm actually flying home in two weeks to go visit family again for a couple of weeks. And then I'll fly back here again. So it's kind of a back and forth right now. You'll be in Italy for about another year and a half. <laughs> uh, yeah, about another uh, 14 months. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And then you'll be able to retire yeah. over to Puerto Rico. And where were you before Puerto Rico? Uh, we were in Maryland. Uh, so okay. we were in Maryland for about eight years. And, and why Puerto Rico? Uh, so I don't know if you know this, but as an American, uh, no matter where you work in the world, you get taxed worldwide on your income. So your income, no matter where you are, when you're working, you are taxed. So if you decide to go live in France for three months, while you're over there, you're still paying the IRS taxes on piano and 21 dayscom everywhere in the world, except one place. And that one place is Puerto Rico. So because Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States, they have their own tax system. And if you pay taxes in Puerto Rico as a Puerto Rican resident, you don't pay taxes to the IRS. So that was one of the reasons why we looked at Puerto Rico originally. We really enjoy the culture down there. We enjoy the people down there. We bought a house down there. We moved our company down there. We have employees down there. And we have become, you know, I don't want to say we're Puerto Ricans because that's we're white people. So it probably doesn't, 
you know, I, it, it, <laughs> I'm not really Puerto Rican by birth or anything, but we are Puerto Rico residents. We vote in Puerto Rico. Our driver's license are Puerto Rico. We, we are Puerto Ricans citizens, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, I think the technical term is bona fide residents. But because of that, we are there under a special program that Puerto Rico has called, back then it used to be 20, Act 20 and Act 22. Uh, now it's called Act 60, but it is a program to bring in people to Puerto Rico to move their businesses there or people who do a lot of investing there. So they bring more money to the island and help the economy of Puerto Rico. Yeah. And so for us, they gave us a favorable tax deal to move to Puerto Rico. And in exchange, we bought our business there and we hired local people there who are now making money and paying taxes into the treasury of Puerto Rico as well. So it's a win for us as a business. It's a win for the local employees. And it's a win for Puerto Rico as a whole because we're buying cars there. We're buying food there. We're buying houses there, right? All that kind of stuff. And that helps stimulate the economy there as well. Yeah, that's really cool. I've heard of people doing that before. My understanding is that it's, it's, it's a thing for kind of online entrepreneurs to do similar things. The two people I've heard about doing that other than you would be John Lee Dumas. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe your neighbors with him down there. No, he and, lives uh, up in Toronto. We live on the West Coast. <laughs> okay. And uh, Peter Schiff. Yeah, I've seen him out. He's actually a big proponent of Act 20 and Act 22. He does a lot of videos on it on YouTube and places like that. And, and yeah, so these programs essentially will reduce your tax rate. Um, but the key is you have to build the product in Puerto Rico and you have to sell it from Puerto Rico outside of Puerto Rico. So anybody I sell to inside of Puerto Rico, we actually have a separate accounting ledger and we pay mm. full taxes on that. But anything we sell to Americans, to Canadians, to Indians, to you know anyone else in the world, we pay a reduced tax rate on that as a business. That's wild. It's, it's, I could imagine just pay, versus pay, <laughs> yeah, pay, picking up the family and moving to Puerto Rico, but it, there's a, just a huge tax break for somebody with, with you know, specifically an online business like we have. Yeah. It's a great place for course creators to be if, you're, if you want to live in Puerto Rico. And I've yeah. never been there. I know I have some, a really good friend who has spent a lot of time there working and he said, it's amazing. It's just, a, it's a little too far away from, from uh, friends and family for me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really nice place to live. I mean, you're, you're still dealing with East Coast time zone. So you're in the same time zone as US, uh, as New York and Miami. Uh, flight to Miami is about two hours. A flight to Louisiana is about three hours. Back home to Maryland was about four hours. So it's, it's not real far. It's only about 1,500 miles from Miami. The weather is good all year round. I mean, it's 70 to 90 degrees pretty much all year round. The people are really nice. You got to learn Spanish because most people speak Spanish there, but that, that's okay. And it's, it, there's some quirks you have to get used to. The way that business is done down there is a little bit different. A lot of it is relationship-based as opposed to the uh, go-go attitude that I'm used to in the Northeast. But yeah, overall, it's been a great experience. We really enjoy it out there. I love my house out there. I love the, uh, the community that we're in and the people. So it's, it's, it's been fun. Well, and it's been a really, really active hurricane season. In fact, we just this last one, we had to evacuate um, just out of an abundance of caution. We just got back last night. How was Puerto Rico affected by this crazy hurricane season? So we only had one tropical storm roll through this entire really? season. We've been really lucky. Um, yeah. This year, everything seems to have hit in the Gulf Coast and gotten you guys yes. and just bypassed <laughs> us. So we've gotten a couple of rain showers. You know, some of the things that are kind of quirky about Puerto Rico is uh, power is is not the necessity and always on that we're used to, <laughs> right? So power and water and internet are just different there than than where we are uh, or where we came from. So in our house, we had to think through that. We have a generator on site. We have battery backups. We have solar panels to make sure that we always have power. Internet. We have an internet provider, you know, our cable modem from our local internet company. But if the power is out in town more than 30 minutes, their repeating station apparently only has a battery backup, not a generator. <laughs> so the internet in our house will go out. We'll have power because we have generators and solar, but no internet. So we had yeah. to just go and put in a new microwave link that now has 99.9% .9 uptime to keep us up in the line. So it's things like that that you have to work through. 
that are you know kind of the trade-offs of living in an island, you're going to get hit by hurricanes. You're going to get hit by earthquakes. I mean, those are things that happen in that region. Uh, right after we bought our house about three months after, there was this whole string of earthquakes in January and February earlier this year in Puerto Rico. And then the whole COVID thing has just made things even more complicated and complex down there as well. So it, it's it's been challenging, but we're, we're working our way through it. <laughs> well, just, just like the course platforms, there's pros and cons to where you live as well. Exactly. All right. So team, let's talk about this. And let's start with the OBM, because this is something yep. that you and I talked about offline a couple months ago. I told you some of the things I was struggling with. And I was like, man, I think I might need to hire a project manager. And you know, we both have backgrounds in project management. And it was it was kind of funny for me to go to you and, and be like, here's the things I'm struggling with when like automation, like I was an automation engineer and then a project manager, but that's like some of the things I needed help with. And you were like, no, man, you don't need a project manager. You need an OBM. And at the time, I didn't even know what it was. And so tell us about your, you know, how, how did you discover what an OBM was and what your experience has been like now that you have one? Yeah. So um, at the time, I had a team of about seven people. And I was kind of the central point for everything still, right? So my team does a lot of work for me. And we built it up over time where I first had a VA, uh, and she's from the Philippines. And she would help with things like captioning courses, answering student requests and emails, and things like that, those, those basic tasks. And then I hired a video editor, and then I hired a web designer. And I kind of kept adding people to the team doing different things. But everybody still came back to me for something. So if we're putting out a new, a new course, for instance, that required the web designer to set it up in LearnDash. And then it required the uh, video editor to edit the videos. And then somebody had to send them to Rev to get them captioned. And then somebody had to make thumbnails for all the videos. Somebody had to upload all the videos. Somebody had to add all the subtitles to all the videos. All those different pieces. And people would go, okay, I finished my part and give it back to me. And then I'd give it to the next person. And so I just kept kind of becoming the bottleneck of everything. And so I wanted to get somebody, and you kind of mentioned like a project manager can do that role and take care of that. Um, and for me, as I started looking around, I found out about this thing called an OBM, Online Business Manager. And a lot of people think of them as super VAs, right? So super virtual assistants. I actually heard about OBMs first. I thought it was from your podcast. I can't remember the episode, <laughs> but I could have sworn it was from your podcast from one of your guests who said they had somebody come in, did it for six months, and then they got it all into a place where they liked it. And then they kind of let them go and they're doing it on their own now. Because a lot of OBMs will do that. They'll come in, they'll create all the processes for you. They'll get the team all working right. And then they'll kind of fly in, fix everything and leave. So I think that's where I heard about it first. And then I started looking at one and ended up choosing one back in April, I think it was, March or April of this year. And Susan's been with me now since then. And it's gotten to the point where she handles pretty much everything in the business, which is needed because I am not in Puerto Rico to run the business right now. I'm over here doing my day job, right? So because I'm over here doing my day job, she's the one who's being able to take care of all of those things for me. And the first month, she kind of went through all of our processes and how we did things originally. And then she came up with a plan of how we were going to do it better. She documented all the processes we had. We're continually improving those processes. And she's made a training program for any new hires. We just hired one new person two weeks ago. She went out, found the person, hired the person, brought the person online, got them trained up, and they're in the business working now. So a lot of these things are things that the OBM can handle for you. I like to think of her as my COO, right? If I'm the CEO, I come up with the vision and say, this is what I want to do. And here's, I think, the five or 10 steps that we need to do to make that happen. I hand that to her. And she turns those five or 10 steps into the 100 steps that actually need to get done. Uh, and then I look back and the thing's done and it's great. So the thing is that you'll find with OBMs, and I know you just recently hired one yourself, they're going to be a lot more expensive than what people are used to paying for a virtual assistant. But it's because you're paying for this higher caliber person who's really there to run your business. They are there to be your operations manager, your, your online business manager, your COO, something of that level. So they, they are pricey, but they're worth it. 
Yeah. When we were talking six, eight weeks ago, you were just telling me that this is the thing that really has allowed you to do things that only need you. Yeah. That was the goal for you for a while. You needed to be the person on camera. I mean, that's that's your main role now. You even have people writing your courses and your scripts for you, but Jason Dion needs to be on camera. But to your point, I got to the same place where it's like, okay, we have this great team. We have these processes. But now I'm just managing the team and the processes and I don't have time to be on camera. I don't have time to do these things that only I can do. And that's where somebody like an OBM fits in. So it sounds like we kind of got to the same place with our struggles and have an OBM coming in to kind of help fix these problems. And I was as I was doing my research on what an OBM, what that even is, in general, they're responsible for four things and good at four things. Project management is one of those four things. And that's kind of why you said, I didn't need a project manager. You need an OBM because project management is only one of the things you need help with. So they typically will do project management. They'll do metrics management. So like data and analytics, they'll do team management and they'll do operations management. So like day-to-day operations and you throw out titles like COO, operations manager. You know, Mine is a certified OBM, but she's actively working on her DOO certification, director of operations. Certification. Nice. <laughs> so there's all kind of titles here. Operations is a whole is a is a whole field, um, and that's that's what that's what this person does is is they they operate your company. They they kind of run your company, and uh, it's been really cool. I'm only about six weeks in, and it's a it's a totally different experience for 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 me and the way I work in my company. But it's really really cool, and allows me to to focus even more on the things that only I can do. So, um, so I, I give you a good example of one of the things that she's taken yeah. off my plate that I just did not trust anybody else with, but I was able to trust Susan with this. And we buy a lot of exam vouchers. As I mentioned, we sell exam vouchers on our website. So when we go in to buy those exam vouchers, we might buy ten or twenty thousand dollars at a time. So right now she brings up somewhere between twenty and forty thousand dollars in exam voucher purchases at a time. She has a company credit card and she goes in and buys those vouchers. She stocks our system. She makes sure what the run-through rate is. She makes sure we're always having enough stock. And that's something I always dealt with before. And it wasn't something that took a lot of time. It would take me 30 minutes or an hour. But every time, three times a week, that's an hour times three is three hours a week times a month. Now we're looking at you know, 12, 14, 16, 18 hours of, of work that I was doing just filling vouchers, you know, going to a website, buying the codes, and inputting them into the database. And I turned that over to her, and she's been able to handle that. And I haven't had to think about it again for six months now which is great. And then I just look at the credit card bill and make sure the bill gets paid and off we go. So it, it's things like that that are, you know, a VA could probably do that. But the challenge I had with a VA doing that is giving a VA a credit card that has a $50,000 limit may be too tempting for somebody who is overseas where that is, you know, two times or three times their salary. So those are kind of things that you you have to think about when you start thinking about what are you going to outsource and what are you going to allow somebody else to deal with? And, and with, you know, the OBM, we've been able to build a relationship where I trust her with that type of, uh, of responsibility. Why do you think more people don't know what an OBM is? Why, why haven't they heard of it? I don't think a lot of people talk about them as much, right? So VAs, I think everybody on your podcast probably has heard of a virtual assistant before. Yes. Tim Ferriss always talks about virtual assistants. Chris Ducker talks about virtual assistants. Lots of people do. And generally, people, when they look for a virtual assistant, they go over to India or the Philippines or someplace like that, where wages are a little bit lower. Um, and, and usually when you're starting out, people will hire a virtual assistant, and then they'll kind of graduate into localized employees. And nobody ever thinks about this third category of these you know, high-performing people who happen to, most of them are Americans and Canadians from what I've seen. And what I've seen the difference with an OBM versus a, a VA 
is VAs are very good at following the procedures you give them, mm-hmm. but there's not always a lot of critical thought. Mm-hmm. It's more, we'll do what you tell us to do. Whereas with the OBM, they actually, you know, my OBM comes to me and says, I have this great idea of how we can do things better, or we should do it this way, or why haven't we thought about doing this other thing? And so they're more of a partner in your business and help you think through those things. Just like, that's why I, you know, I call her my COO, because really she is the opposite of me where I'm trying to think of vision and what the future mm-hmm. should be. She's thinking about how to make that vision a reality. Yes. Whereas with a VA, I used to have to say, okay, here are the hundred steps I want you to do. Now go do them. They'll do them perfect every time, but they couldn't come up with the steps themselves. Whereas the OBM, I think, does that a lot more often. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of times it's a progression. I mean, a VA doesn't just have to be overseas. There's plenty yeah. of United States-based uh, virtual assistants as well. In fact, I just hired a new uh, US-based virtual assistant uh, last week, and she's doing awesome so far. But that's one of the needs that Colleen noticed in the business as she got in. It's like, hey, we need actually another VA. Like the one you have right now is kind of tapped out. We need somebody else to come in in about 10 hours uh, a week. But uh, a lot of times OBMs will, will start as a VA and that's kind of a natural yeah. progression for them. And that that's, you know, mine started as a VA and worked her way up to a certified OBM. And now she's working her way up to a certified director of operations. And the other thing that's really interesting about OBMs that a lot of people don't realize is even though it's this higher level, more critical thinking, somebody that can make uh, visions a reality and delegate to the team and manage projects and all this, most of the time, it's still not a full-time position, right? Yeah. You have a two, she's running your $2 million a year company part-time. Yep. She has, uh, she has four clients. Uh, I'm her biggest client. And then she has three others. One of which is actually I'm friends with, and the reason he hired her is because she was doing great things in my business. Mine is definitely the biggest and most complex of the the businesses she manages. But but yeah, it's it's that's the thing is I didn't need somebody full time. I didn't need to hire a COO for two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year to run this company. I didn't have enough work for a COO. But this OBM who's filling that role, she's able to do that, and she does it part time, and so she gets paid that part time wage of doing that as opposed to you know doing it full time for two hundred two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. So I think that's the thing is just like why we would outsource certain tasks, you may outsource your video editing because you don't do enough videos where you need somebody full time, 40 hours a week to do it. Um, You may only need 10 hours a week, right? Or you need it per project. It's the same kind of thing with an OBM where you can get them in for that 10, 20, 30 hours a week, whatever it is your business needs. And even because she's part time, I've never had an instance where I needed her and she wasn't available either. So uh, for us, she's, you know, always, she has certain tasks that need to be done on certain days of the week based on like filling vouchers and things like that. But overall, I've never had an issue where I've said, hey, Susan, I need something. And she hasn't been there, even though I know she's got two or three other clients. And, and talking to my friend who also hires her, he's had the same experience. She's always has enough capacity to fill what we need from her, even though she's spread across three or four clients. I know who this friend is. He's been on the podcast. Can we say his name? Uh, sure, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> he's another big Udemy guy. Uh, Scott, yeah. right? Yeah, Scott Duffy. Yep. So how how many hours per week would you say that she works for him roughly? Is it like five? Um, I don't know how many she works for him. My guess is probably five or ten. Five I or guess. ten, right? Um yeah. you know, I was, you know, I have this program called Next Level Courses where it's kind of a group coaching program. There's some content, um, but people have the opportunity to come in and I'll bring people on camera for about five minutes with me one on one and then move on to the next person. And there's this one girl who's been in the program kind of since the beginning who I was chatting with last week and she's she's got a very 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 small team but she's got a, she she's just very passionate about her topic and she's just right on the cusp of really scaling and just making this thing big time and 
she went, she was trying to figure out what position to hire next. And I was telling her about this OBM thing and she hadn't heard of it. And she was like, Jacques, I just like, I can't afford a person like that. I was like, you know, you're, you're, you're making assumptions here. Like, first of all, yes, they're higher dollar people, but these are part-time people for the most part. It's very rare that an OBM comes in and works for you full-time. In fact, yep. you could have an OBM come in and work for you for five hours a week. She's like, oh, really? And I was like, yeah, and I know a lot about your business. That's probably all you need, <laughs> you know? And so that's why I was wondering about Scott's situation because I figured he was he didn't need as much attention to you. And I figured her, yep. she was more like five or 10 hours a week. And he's who I was thinking of when I was telling this girl on, on the coaching call that you know, an OBM, they, they want to have multiple clients typically. And, uh, and so that's definitely something you could pursue. So if somebody's listening to this and you're like, you, you don't want the, you don't want an OBM to be the first person you hire. You need to have yeah. somewhat of a team in place already, because that's one of the things they help you do is to manage that team. Right. But if you have two, three, four people on board already, you have, you have somebody that's helping you with video or graphics, um, or audio and so on, then consider bringing on an OBM at five hours a week, even. Um, cause they're going to make your life so much easier and they're, they're going to be able to execute things, uh, your vision. Like you said earlier, Jason, like yeah. let's, let's sit up here at the top and we're, we're the, we're the creator of the business and our main responsibility is driving the vision going forward. Right. I, I think and the if, other thing that's important is when you're hiring an OBM is you need to have the right mindset of what that OBM is going to do for you. So you, you can't have the mindset of this OBM is going to be the person doing the work. That's not normally yes. what they do. They are there to manage the work and make sure the, management, the, the work gets done and make sure they break out the big task into the little pieces. Uh, in fact, in my business, I fill two roles. I am both the COO, excuse me, the CEO, and I am the lead instructor. And yes. as I told Susan, when I hired her, like, look, when I'm wearing my CEO hat, I'm your boss. When I'm wearing my lead instructor hat, <laughs> you're my boss, right? And, and seriously, like she puts together the calendar. And she says, hey, we need to film these videos on this day. And you owe me this amount of stuff by Friday. I'm just one of the employees in that case. So I pay her paycheck, but she still tells me what to do. But that keeps me on track and she helps me prioritize what does she need in the grander scheme? Because I might think, oh, I don't need to worry about getting this video today. I can do it next week. Answering these emails is more important. And she'll go, no, I need you to do that first because if you don't get that done, there's five other people in line waiting to edit the video, caption the video, upload the video, you know, create the thumbnails for it. All that stuff can't be done until you're done teaching it. So you need to go do that first. So I, I think it's important to know that. And then as far as when to hire an OBM, I think it's important to figure out when is the right time. If you're planning on doing a bunch of hires really soon, you can actually hire the OBM first because mm -hmm. they can actually go through and hire people for you. Uh, one of the big things she's done for Scott was she he wanted to hire a couple of teaching assistants. And she went through, she created the job advertisement, she put out the job advertisement, she got 50 candidates, she narrowed it down to five people. She went through and interviewed those five, and then she made a recommendation to Scott and said, hey, I think you should hire number one and number three. And then Scott could either hire those or interview with them and make sure he was happy with them. And so they can do all of that work for you as well, which saves, I mean, I know when I hire somebody, it takes me 30, 40 hours of my time going through resumes. Having somebody else who can do that is awesome, right? So, you know, it depends on where you are in your, in your stage. And then I think the other thing that, you know, just to give people an idea of what an OBM costs. So, you know, one of the things that I always struggle with when I was trying to figure out when I was hiring people is how much should something cost, right? So I can start factoring that in and, and budgeting for it. I've seen OBMs anywhere from 2000 to 10000 per month. For my size business, when I was going to hire, I had job offers from the top three candidates that we narrowed down to. It was 4000 6000 and 8000 And we hired one of those people. 
So I'm not going to tell you how much, but we had one of those people. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know if Susan listens. So, but, but there is a range, right? You have OBMs that have been doing this for 20 years. Like I didn't, I didn't know what this was till recently, but, but there have been online business managers that, that have been doing this for, for far longer than I even realized was, was possible, you know, in the early 2000s. And by the way, I don't think we've even shared the resource yet that both you and I used to find our OBM, but it was onlinebusinessmanager.com. Very original, right? And <laughs> Tina Forsyth runs that site and she's got this program where she certifies OBMs. And so you know if you go through that site, you're you're getting, you know, Tina Forsyth approved certified OBMs. And and basically the process that both you and I took is we went to the request uh, RFP, request for proposal, and submitted there's a bunch of questions. You want to be very thoughtful when you fill that out, exactly what you're looking for. And then within, man, within like four hours of filling that out, I had I started getting applications to my inbox. And I yep. ended up getting like 17 applications and went through an interview process. But it was, it was really great. Was your experience on that site uh, pretty good as well? Yes, I, I think it's really good. And I think uh, additionally, you know, the more open and upfront you are in that RFP process, the better your results you're going to get. For instance, in ours, I said, hey, we are a seven, we are a low seven-figure business. We're trying to get up to mid-seven figures. We need somebody to help us get to that level because yeah. right now I'm the bottleneck of the company. And I know this because a lot of my people aren't working 40 hours a week, even though I'm paying them 40 hours a week because I don't have time to give them what they need. And so I need somebody to start doing that. And since we've done that, productivity has gone way up. Not my staff was lazy. My staff, a lot of times, was waiting on me. And so I was very specific in what we were looking for. I was looking for somebody who could do automations. I was looking for somebody who could go through our current processes, get things documented. And even the process of doing that was really easy to work with. Uh, We did a lot of things like Loom. So I would go in and create a Loom video of what I was doing, and I would give it to her, and then she would document that and be able to set it up so somebody else on the team could take over that task. But if you're very, uh, when I went through the RFP process, I think I had about 40 or 45 people because I waited about a week until I cut off. Mm. And then I went through those resumes, chose the five I wanted to interview. And then interviewed those five and chose who I wanted out of there. One of the people I interviewed that I liked, she's like, I'll be honest, the biggest business I've worked on so far has been a $200,000 a year company. So your company is a lot bigger than what I'm used to. I love the chance, but I totally understand if, you know, you know, I just want you to know that I've never managed a company that big before. So it may be an issue for me, right? Um, because there are different things that happen when you're in a $100,000, $200,000 company versus a $1 million, $2 million company versus when you get to a five or $10 million company. There's different levels and there's different things that need to happen inside of those businesses. And my business happens to be fairly complicated because we've got this whole Udemy part and then we've got mm-hmm. our own website part and then we've got those vouchers that we sell. And then we had live courses that we were doing every so often. And, and all those things just were very, very complex. And it took a while for her to get her arms around all of that. Yeah. And it's, it's a really, in general, very high quality person too. I was very impressed yes. by all the applications that came through. And by the way, on that site, they do offer a couple of services. There, there's Pat, you we neither myself nor you, I don't think Jason paid anything to onlinebusinessmanager.com, nope. but they have packages you can buy where they can, you can send your requirements to them and they can curate three or five people for you to interview or even just like pick a person for you. But neither of us felt the need to do that. And it still worked out yep. really well. And I'd also like to echo a couple of other points you made a couple of minutes ago in, first of all, that this person can actually hire or, or uh, weed through candidates for you. That's what we did with this recent VA hire that we did on our side is not only did she identify that we had this need, but she went out. She, you know, she she used to be a VA. She's got circles and she's, you know, she went out there and found a bunch of candidates, like 10 people. She did the initial interviews and she brought to me what she felt like was the three best for what we needed. 
And then she and I interviewed them together and then we were able to chat about it and figure out who we wanted to hire. It's really, really cool to have that like second in command person for, for reasons yeah. like that. And the other thing I wanted to echo was when you're talking about how sometimes when you're the CEO, you're the boss of her, but then when you're the lead instructor, she's your boss. And about two weeks into our relationship, she was like, Hey Jacques, you were supposed to get this task done yesterday and <laughs> it's not, it's not done. Like everything else is waiting for you. And it was such a nice experience because for the first time ever, somebody else was holding me accountable. Yep. Right. Cause she could see the big picture. She saw where this was going and she knew if I didn't get my task done, then all these other things would fall behind. Whereas before my task would slip, you know, whoever had it next audio editor, sometimes he would say something, sometimes he wouldn't, but now somebody's actually managing the big picture and it's incredibly helpful even when I'm just one of those tasks on the list. Yeah. And for me, it was when I hired somebody, I hired somebody who would keep me accountable to that because up to this point, I was number one in the company. My wife was number two. We worked <laughs> together. Um, and you know, so it's, it's easy for her to call me out on stuff, but she's not the most detail-oriented person. I'm the detail-oriented one. So often it was me calling her out on things that she was missing. And so it's nice to have that third person who can call us both out on it. <laughs> so it makes the family life a little bit easier there. But yeah, I, I find it really is, is nice if you hired from me with the right personality and the right leadership to take on. Um, that's the other thing is when we looked at the people, it wasn't for us, it wasn't as much about the money it was going to cost. When we started looking at the three candidates, it was all three of them were excellent candidates. But the reason we chose Susan was because her personality we knew would fit in well with our team because of the type of team and dynamic that we already had. And at this point, we're up to nine people in our team. Uh, and we're actually hiring right now another customer service agent for the daytime. And so Susan's leading up that process to find us somebody for that. Very, very cool. Let's talk a little bit about tools. Whenever I start telling people that I know really well about this OBM thing and, and this hire that I've made, they're like, I, any, I think you even said this at some points, like, yeah. but Jock, you're like, you've got so many processes in place. You're so organized. You were a project manager. Like, why do you need, like, your, your company's not a mess. Why would you need this? And yes, to an extent, <laughs> but I ran everything on spreadsheets. Everything was on spreadsheets. I tried to move everything over to something called ClickUp like eight months ago. People were telling me about ClickUp, awesome like project management software. I spent far too long trying to figure it out, trying to make it work. And then I just gave up because I couldn't and went back to my spreadsheets. And so one thing that Colleen has been able to do, and it's been incredible and I'd love to hear what project management software you use, but she she likes Asana, so we went with Asana, and she has set up everything in Asana, and you know it's it's just so automated. Like one person finishes their task, the next person gets notified. If somebody has a question about a certain task, you just chat about it right there within Asana, and it's been amazing. And and we're just five or six weeks in, and she's set up eighty percent of the business in Asana, uh, and we've gotten off of some of these spreadsheets and. I just didn't have the time or energy to set up project management software. But the fact that we can, like on my end, it's almost like we snapped our fingers and now we're in this amazing system is awesome. Are you guys using Asana as well? Yeah. So we started out with Asana. Um, usually she used the free version of Asana, which does a lot of stuff. Uh, so you don't have to spend a lot of money on Asana. Um, I decided to upgrade us to the paid version. I think it's, I don't know. I think we pay like two, 200 bucks a year or 300 bucks a year, something like that. I don't know. It's pretty inexpensive for like up to 10 users. And in that, the reason we did that was it gives us a couple other things. We have goals that we have in there. We have portfolios in there and we have the ability for automations in there. So for instance, when I'm building a course, which we build a course every, pretty much every three months because 
we're always refreshing our content because exams change. When we're building our course, she'll list out every single lesson in the course based on the outline I create. And so our last course, for instance, had about 250 videos that we had to make. So it's a lot of moving pieces to create this final course. So she listed every single one and it starts out with the first column is, you know, write the script or, or, you know, write the script or the outline. Then it's film the course. Then it's edit the course. Then it's review the course for quality control. Then we get it captioned. Then we upload it to Udemy. Then we upload it to Vimeo, uh, which is what we use for LearnDash. And then we send it to the web dev guy to link it from Vimeo over to the website. And so we've got all these different columns that it goes across. And by having the automations, when I move something from the film column to the edit column, it automatically assigns that to my video editor and lets her know so she can start working. If you don't have those automations, you have to do that yourself. And that's an extra two or three clicks. But doing that two or three clicks times 300 videos adds up to a lot. So for me, the 200 bucks a year was well worth it. Yeah. And uh, we're, the other thing we do... Sorry, we're on the paid plan as well. The free, the free wasn't yeah. going to be good enough for us either. Yeah. And then the other thing we use in there is the portfolios, which I really like. So for, for us, we have portfolios of courses. Uh, as I mentioned, we have three columns and each of those has five to seven uh, courses in it. So we can see where we are in each portfolio, how close we are to getting things done. We have a portfolio, for instance, for web development projects. So sometimes we're working on one project, sometimes we're working on two or three projects. So by grouping those, it gives me as the CEO one place to look and it gives me a quick update that she fills in at the end of every week. Here's where we are. Here's the next things we're doing. And so the team can all look at the details and I can just look at the big picture as well. And if I want to dig down, I can look at the details as well. And the other thing they have in there is goals. So if you have something like revenue goals, for instance, you could say, hey team, our goal is to get a million dollars this year. And if we do that, we're going to pay out bonuses. And so everyone can see what those goals are as we're going to hit that target. And then they get bonuses. Uh, Because one of the things I do with my team is every quarter, they get a quarterly bonus based on how profitable the company is. Um, Because I want to encourage them to help our students and make us more money. And if they make us more money, I get to let them have money too. So it works out well for everybody. Yeah, that's that's really cool that you do that. Now, as far as tools go, there's really two tools that we're using that that really help us as a team. And Asana is new for us, but the other one we've been using well before we had an OBM and that's Slack. Are you guys using Slack to communicate as a team? Yep, we're still on Slack. We are on Slack as well. That's something that we brought in. Before that, we were in email uh, through yeah. Google Suite. And by going to Slack, that really was one of the first things we did that got our way together. Um, the other tool we use a lot is Freshdesk, which is our customer support tool. Mm-hmm. That's where all of our emails go into. And we also do all of our automations there to answer Udemy questions, excuse me, Udemy questions as well as student questions. Yeah, I, Slack, you know, I, a lot of people use Slack and it's great. And I'm not sure what we would do without it, but it doesn't seem overly complicated. Like, why couldn't some of those features just be built in something like Asana? Yeah, I I think it could. Uh, One of the things I found with Slack is that Slack is really good uh, for basic communications and channels. But in addition to that, it has a lot of integrations that you can do inside of it as well. So we actually have it integrated with Asana. So if you're in Asana uh, or if you're in Slack, for instance, and there's a project due date, it'll pop up in your Slack and you can answer it right from there. If you want to get communication from Slack to Asana, it's really easy. Another thing we have is my Google Calendar is synced up with Slack. So when I'm in Slack, it came up 10 minutes before our thing saying, hey, you've got this appointment with Jock, go get on the call. Yeah. So all that kind of lives inside Slack. So it becomes your your command center, if nothing else, right? You always know where to look and everything kind of gets drawn through there. Are you using the paid version of Slack? So I think we are on the free version of Slack that lets us have up to 10 integrations. We haven't needed the paid version yet. I think the only thing that it doesn't do for us is that it only stores the last 10,000 messages. Yes. And if you pay, uh, then you get, I think, more big, like unlimited storage, I think. Right. Um, we just haven't had need for it yet. So we haven't moved up. Yeah. I just got a notification yesterday on Slack. It's like, hey, you're approaching your 10,000 message limit. If you don't upgrade, 
you're going to start losing some of the older messages, which, you know, we've been using Slack for 18 months. So the ones that are going to go away are the oldest ones, but still that thought of just like, if I were, cause sometimes I'll search back and like, I'll need to see what a conversation was. So I'm like debating whether we need to go to the paid version or not. And I don't think it's very expensive. I think it's like four or $5 per user, right? Per user. But if, you know, my team's up to like seven people that adds up. Yeah, we've got 10. So for us, it'd be like yeah. $10 a month. Yeah. yeah it's all these software as a service, right? They all it's $5 here, $10 there. And you look up and you're spending $500 a month around or whatever. <laughs> At least. Um, now, you mentioned profit sharing a couple of times. I don't know that a lot of people in your position would do profit sharing with everybody on their team. What motivates you to do that? And, and how do you do it? Is it like a percentage of profits or revenue? Or is it just a kind of a random number? Yeah, so um, it's kind of a mixture of both. <laughs> it's not an exact number, but it's just kind of a generic number. Um, so essentially, when I look at what our profits were, we started doing this earlier this year. I think our first quarter we did this was January, uh, right after the holidays. We had done the first one. And so I looked at where our business was, and I was really happy with where we had gotten. Um, and I set aside a chunk of money, like five or $10,000, and said, this is going to be split up between the team. And each quarter, if we are you know, at where we were or above, we raise it or lower it as needed. And so generally, each person on the team is getting you know, $500 or $1,000 every quarter as a bonus based on the, the profit sharing that we've been doing. Um, and I would love it if I had a way to kind of directly tie it to people's jobs. I'm a big Dave Ramsey fan. I think you listen to Dave Ramsey as well uh, and read a lot of his stuff. And, and I'm a, I would love to put everybody on a commission type thing. I just haven't figured out a way to do that, unfortunately. Right? It's it's really hard for me to figure out. Hey, you're the person who is editing videos. How does that directly impact more sales of a course? I know it does because without you, I can't make the course. I can't sell it. But it's harder to do that uh, as opposed to if I had somebody writing questions for an a, a exam course and we sold the exam course. It's pretty easy to see if they got a percentage of that. So for uh, right now, we kind of do it based on. If you've been with a company for a certain amount of time, you're eligible for this profit sharing. If the company's doing well, you get part of that profit sharing. And it's actually been really nice throughout this whole COVID thing. A couple of my team members, they've had issues where a spouse may have lost their job. And so now they're the only the only person working and they're working for our company. Um, and our company has gone up through COVID because we're an online business. And so they've actually gotten additional profit sharing and their, their salary has gone up over time with being with us. Um, and so they, they're kind of carrying the load on their families. So we've been able to help them through those rough times, which is nice. We also uh, provide healthcare for our folks too, which I know a lot of people don't do. Yeah, I think you mentioned that last time you were on about how you structured that, which is really, really cool that you're doing that as well. And it's just it's been really cool to to follow your your progress. Uh, I love chatting with you both on the podcast and off because you're just continuing to grow while working this job and and moving <laughs> to Puerto Rico and and doing all these things. So um, it's it's really really cool, and I think and I really appreciate you continuing to come on and share all this awesome online course knowledge that you have. Now that you have the OBM in place, you've got Asana, you got all these systems. The goal was Jason only needs to be doing things that Jason only Jason can do. Is there anything you're still doing that somebody else could do? There's still a couple of things and we're still working on getting those off my plate too. So we've been doing <laughs> more and more transfers. Every month uh, when we meet with the OBM, uh, Susan goes, okay, what else can I take off your plate? What else do you not need to be doing? And um, one of the things I was doing last month that I stopped doing now is I used to do all the promo emails. So once a month, uh, we would send a promo email to my list to advertise things to on my site. Or twice a month, we would do it for the Udemy stuff because Udemy allows us to put our stuff on clearance twice a month. And I would be the one writing up the email. I'd be the one going in and emailing those out. And now I have one of my guys on my team who's my content writer. He writes up the emails. He then turns it over to the VA. She goes in and schedules the email and active campaign. 
she also goes into Udemy and sends out the email. Somebody else makes the coupons. And so I've been removed from that whole process now. In fact, tomorrow, as we're filming this tomorrow, they'll actually be going and sending out the next promo. And I've been hands off on that whole process. They've taken that off my plate. The exam vouchers is something I've given over to Susan so that she's been taking that over for the last couple of months. Pretty much now, I really focus, the majority of what I do is focused on outlining the next course and filming the next course. That's, that's really where I focus my efforts on. And so I haven't really been adding a lot of new stuff onto my plate. Instead, we've kind of cleared off my plate so I can focus on my day job, uh, so I can have more time with family. Because I'll tell you, for the first three years of this business, I was just running like crazy uh, and didn't spend a whole lot of time uh, with you know family and friends and stuff like that because we were just so focused on working on the business. And I'm trying to back that off. And that's that's always my biggest challenge is as I have more space in my calendar, because Susan and the team have taken things off my calendar, not putting more stuff into it. Uh, and that's also one of the things that Susan's helped me with because I had this great idea of two weeks ago. I was like, I have this great idea. This is the next thing we're going to do. And I'm like, this is awesome. And she goes, do we really need to do it? Is it going to fill up your calendar again? It's like, I'm not opposed to your idea. I think it's a great idea, but I think we need to hire another instructor to do that thing instead of you. Um, and you can kind of sprinkle fairy dust on it. Um, I, I know you're a big Mike McCallitz fan as well, but yes. you know, one of the ideas I had was we were thinking about doing something kind of like what he does with Adrian Dorsett with one like clockwork, where you hire another instructor and then kind of sprinkle yourself into it 10% of the time. And that way it's mostly relying on the other instructor. She's like, if we're doing it that way, I'm okay with it. If you're going to make the entire course, we're not doing it. <laughs> so, um, so, so again, it, I think that's helpful to have that person to bounce those ideas off and see, is it a good idea? And should we actually implement it? Yeah, very cool. That's, you know, I went on that five week road trip over the summer. You follow the podcast, so you probably follow yep. that a little bit. And I just, I drove for 6,000 miles. So I had all this time to myself. Well, you know, my family was in the car, but a lot of times the kids were sleeping and we had to be quiet. So I just thought a lot. And so by the end of the road trip, I had so many ideas and new initiatives. And as soon as I got home, I tried to implement all of them, which was a huge mistake. And, uh, and that's, that's when I really realized that I needed the OBM because I've got ideas and some of them are decent and I need somebody to, well, help me we, if, you know, filter through the ideas and tell me, hey, we can't implement all 19 at one time, but then the, the three that we pick to, to actually lead the charge in implementing them. So that's been the real game changer. So look, the majority of this conversation, I think would mostly benefit people that are a little established with online courses. Before we wrap up, let's quickly think about people that are, that are more in the beginning stages. And let's go back to a little bit about Udemy because you've got this really dialed in process for making Udemy and your own platform work. And I asked you the question about what, what would happen if we just eliminated Udemy and, and you didn't like the sound of that. Do you recommend the average person starting an online course try to start in both places? So it's hard to start in both places, I think, because again, Udemy has this algorithm, right? It's just like Amazon. The stuff that sells, sells more. And so if your course is on there and it's already selling, it's going to rise in the rankings and get towards number one, which means it's going to sell even more. If you're just starting out, it's really hard to gain traction on Udemy. My first month on Udemy, I did a whopping $58 job, <laughs> $58, right? Um, I do many, many, many times that now in a month. But my first month was 58. My second month was like 162. The third month was like 250. And I kind of kept doubling and doubling for a while. But it took a lot to get that momentum running. It's just like if you're going to start a brand new YouTube channel, right? Nobody knows you're on YouTube until you start driving traffic to the uh, channel and start getting something that catches on. So if you're going to do all that work, you know, if I was starting over again, I don't know if I would have started on Udemy. 
I probably would have done something more similar to what you do and, and having you know a single course or maybe a couple of courses and just really dial in a funnel. I think Udemy is great and it's been awesome for us. But I, I don't know if starting out there is going to be easy because there are 50,000 other courses, right? It's And how do you get found in the mess that is that? And it really does depend on your topic. So for me, the course I started out with, there was three courses on the platform for my topic. And it was something that people would search for because it's a known certification. So if they searched, I was going to be on page one regardless. And then I just had the best course. And uh, over time, those reviews kind of took off and, and I got to be you know number one or number two. I think you know if I was going to start a how to make money online course, there's ten thousand other courses. I'm doing a Java programming courses, there's five or ten thousand other courses there. It's really hard to be found when there's five or ten other ten thousand other courses. So I, I don't know if it'd be so successful starting there today. But then you also have the other challenge of if you started on your own site, you now have to drive traffic there and get found. And so right. that's ads or SEO or YouTube videos or whatever else you're going to do to start getting people there. So either way, you've got to start directing traffic there to start it out. And, um, you know, the nice thing about Udemy is once you get it going to a certain level, it will start finding itself. And if you're doing something that's specific, or you find that one niche that nobody else is in, that somebody's searching for, and you can fill that niche, you can get those people because people are there searching for courses already. But if you have something you're going to be that there's already a hundred other courses on it, it's going to be really hard to get into that top, top 10, top 15 and start making money on there. So what you're saying is either way, it's not a magic pill. Still a lot of no, work. There, 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 is, there, is, there is no magic pill in this online course thing. I see a lot of people say, oh, just buy my course. I'll teach you how to make online courses and you'll be rich. I will tell you that for every guy like me on Udemy, there's probably 5,000 other people who made yes. $25 a month and that's where they're stuck, right? And I think the same thing even in the ClickFunnels world as well, right? Or any of the other course platforms out there. For every one person who made it, there's probably a hundred or a thousand people who didn't. And I know I see the same thing with like the old traditional multi-level marketing back in the day, right? The mm-hmm. Avon lady or the Tupperware salesman. Uh, for every one who made it, there's five hundred people who didn't. Now the challenge is how do you get to be that one person, right? And I think a lot <laughs> of it is who sticks it out longest, right? If, if I had started on Udemy and after the first three months saw, oh man, I made fifty dollars, one hundred and fifty, and two fifty, this sucks. I'm going to go do something else. Um, I, w- I would have not done anything else, right? But by month three, I was like, oh, I'm actually making some money at this. This is cool. And I made a second course. And then I made some more money and I made a third course. And then that third course was the topic that really hit. And that's where I got most of my audience from. And then I was able to resell to them over and over again. And that just brought in more and more students. So so it's you never know. It's kind of like YouTube, right? You put out videos every week because you don't know what's going to hit. But once you have one that hits, it kind of just starts filling itself over and over and over again. And uh, online courses are the same thing. You never know what is going to be the thing that just hits the audience right. Yeah. I think and a lot of times, the, the people that end up being successful are the ones that just got around the most obstacles and roadblocks right? Yeah. and didn't give up too soon. I mean, it was, it was like two years in before I reached my first $1,000 month, right? And even that yeah. wasn't enough to quit my job or to, to live off of. That was a big milestone, but two years, two years yeah. of, of a lot of hard work after my, my full-time job. And heck, even you are still working a full-time job and you're still doing this in your in your spare time and you've got a family you've got kids man i couldn't imagine but persistence and, and I think, yeah I, I think the other thing is you know having the right expectations right so one of the things i think that there's a lot of people out there that say oh it's so easy and you're just gonna make all this money working you know not even working from home you just you know do it once and it pays forever and i don't think that's realistic um i think one of the reasons why i stuck with udemy so long was i originally had put my courses on youtube just for free and i was like oh, mm-hmm. i'll make money off the ad revenue and I got up to like $50 a month in ad revenue, right? It wasn't anything major. 
And one of my friends at work was like, why don't you put this on Udemy? And I never even heard of Udemy. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I'll try it out. So I put it on Udemy and add some quizzes and exams and started selling it. The first month I did $58. Like, wow, that's awesome. It made more than YouTube did. And so I thought this is great. And, and it, it just kind of went from there. But I think a lot of people have this expectation that month one, you're going to make $10,000. And they hear these $10,000 launches. And that's just not the reality for most people, I think. Unless you have a big audience that you're already bringing to it, you got to understand that you're going to start out small and you're going to have to build up over time. And it does take a while. But if you stick with it and you have a good product and you get the success that students want, those people, that one student, you know, if you had three people in your first course, those three people can tell three other people. And that's nine people for your next course. And then those nine become 18. And it just keeps going from there. Um, but it's the student success over and over again. Yeah, well said. I mean, I've, I've interviewed over 100 people on this podcast now. And the stories of just more consistent growth versus like quick, quick success is, is way, way more prevalent. And that's one of the goals with this podcast. I don't want to just share these crazy success stories from people that are just naturally ridiculously gifted. Not that you're not, Jason, <laughs> but you know, you, your first month was $58 and then you $150 and so on. It's not like you just flip the switch and all of a sudden you're making $20,000 a month. And yeah. I think that's far less relatable than your story and my story. Yes, Piano in 21 Days is now about a million dollar a year revenue business. But guess what? Last year it was five hundred thousand. The year before that it was two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah. Year before that it was a hundred thousand. You know, and it's it's this it's this growth. And I just didn't I didn't go from zero to a million dollar business in a year. It took seven years, and it's it's been worth it. And I'd say it's been worth it for you as well. But it's a lot of hard work. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think the the interesting thing is it's always this exponential curve as well, right? It's not yeah. one plus one equals two. It's you know one plus one equals two, and two plus two equals four, and four plus four equals eight. Yeah. Eight plus eight equals sixteen. It just keeps going from there. Because so I've seen the same thing in my business. You know, this year we our, our revenue was around two million. Uh, last year was about eight hundred thousand. Year before that was about four hundred thousand. And so it's almost been like doubling every year as we keep going. And, and so it's it's been interesting. And you know, going back to expectation management, when I started this thing, I started at my fifteen year point, knowing that I was going to retire at twenty years. And my whole goal was if I could get it to in that five years up to half of my salary, then with my pension and the half I would be making online, I wouldn't have to get a quote regular job, right? And so my goal was about 5,000 a month is what we wanted. And we ended up hitting that goal in about seven months, uh, which blew me and my wife out of the water. We just did not expect that. Um, but again, we just kind of hit that course, that, that number three course, that, that was a target that people just loved it. And it just started taking off from there. Um, and that's when we kind of like, oh man, like people like you're like, why do you keep doing, why do you still your day job? I'm like, I kind of lost it at this point. But, uh, but that was our goal was, hey, we're picking up to 5,000 a month, that plus my retirement, I'm good. <laughs> and, and it just kind of kept going from there. So it's kind of interesting. Very cool. Man, a lot of great insights. Really appreciate this. We've been going for a while now. And, and I know you listened to the podcast and uh, a few episodes ago, maybe 10 ago, I made a conscious decision to try to do longer form interviews, make it a little more personal, more conversational than interview based. And this, I would say, has followed in that path as, as a listener. What, what do you think about this newer format? I, I like the newer format. I like the, uh, the more conversational tones. Um, I think it works out really well. And yeah, I, I, it does make for a very long episode. But for me, I always listen to them in the car. So it's not really a big deal for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tried the I tried the clips thing, and that was just a, that was a lot of work, and and it, it was very polarizing. Some people loved it, and some people hated it in their feed too. So my goal is to have a, actually a second podcast feed with clips, and I think you actually had the suggestion of, hey, it'd be great to have clips from this week, but also older clips as well brought to the front of the clips feed as well, because 
you said, hey, I listen every week, so I don't really need the the clips, but I would love, you know, I forgot what happened in episode 122 if you have little nuggets here and there. So I think that's the new plan at some point in the future once Colleen is more caught up and she can own that task. That sounds like a so, great task for you yeah. to go back to the old archives and listen and go, oh, that was the clip. We'll take that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Colleen can manage it and then we'll have, you know, a VA kind of pick out the clips and whatnot, but that'll, that'll be coming down the road. So we punted temporarily on the clips. So Jason, as a, as a listener of the podcast, you're pretty in tune with who this audience is. Very successful course creator. Um, I've kind of gone through all my notes here. Any, any last parting wisdom, any other thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience here? Um, I think one of the big things that I see a lot of people do, uh, and I did this too, was we tried to start out on you know bootstrapping it, right? We don't want to spend any money on anything don't want to pay any, anything for tools. We try to use the free versions of everything. And one thing I'd caution you about with that is also think about it from the long term, because I will tell you, having moved from Thinkific to LearnDash and LearnDash to three LearnDashes and three LearnDashes, now back to Thinkific uh, and things like that, had I had just moved up in plan on Thinkific before, uh, I probably could have avoided a lot of that pain and suffering. So sometimes you just need to think about, is the tool you're using, it may be good now, but is it going to be good six months from now or six years from now? Because every time you have to move and rework things, it can get very expensive for you and very time-consuming. I can't count the amount of hours that my team spent moving everyone into LearnDash. And now we're going to be doing all this again to move them out of LearnDash. So keep that in mind as you're, as you're pricing out things. There is this opportunity cost uh, of the tools you're using. And if you can buy a tool, like we talked about uh, Asana, right? There's free versions, but every time you're going to move something, it takes three or four more clicks. That adds up when you're doing it three or 400 times. It may be worth the $5 or $10 a month to pay to remove those three or four clicks. So things like that. Um, sometimes you can be, uh, what is it, uh, a penny wise and a pound foolish, right? I, I think that's kind of, I've done that in plenty of times in my business. And uh, those are the things I regret the most. Amazing. Jason, thanks so much for your time. We'll, we'll have to do it again sometime, right? Always, man. Happy to talk. All right, man. Take care. <laughs> Later, Jacques. All right, David. Welcome back. Thank you. What'd you think? Too long? You you enjoyed it. You enjoy the new the new format. Uh, what oh, do you man. think? Well, yeah, I pulled it up last night and I was like, oh, I wonder how long this is. I saw an hour and 40 minutes. I was like, whoa. But um, no, I mean, Jason, uh, first off, I just got to say thanks for your service for our country. Um, I mean, that's that's incredible and in getting that full 20 years and serving our country. And uh, the other thing, Jason, you know, I mean, I, I could sense that you were in the right place at the right time with the right knowledge, but um, you're exceptional. Like you are so enjoyable to listen to and to learn from. Um, I appreciated your sense of humor and, and just so you had me laugh out loud a couple of times. So, uh, Jason, just I, I can see where, you know, your knowledge and, and there was the right place, right time. But man, you're an exceptional teacher. So I can see why your students love you. Well said. I'm not like in a mastermind or anything with with Jason, but he's one of my go to mm -hmm. guys. Like if I'm struggling with anything, if I have any questions, like he's one of the first person I always hit up. I'm like, hey man, this is what I'm dealing with. Like, what would you do in this situation? Always enjoy talking to him. And it's just like I had some talking points, had some questions, some topics I wanted to go over with him. And basically we talked until my list was done. And that just happened to take an hour and 40 minutes. And I'm not apologizing for that. I think there's value throughout the entire conversation. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed it. I hope the listeners enjoyed yeah. it as well. So it was super fascinating just hearing about how he's been able to craft this symbiotic relationship with Udemy. As you know, I, I'm in the Facebook group by Bill Ebener and Jeremy Deegan. And so in that mm -hmm. group, you kind of right. learn more about what's going on in the world of Udemy. And uh, my 
my thought was that a lot of the Udemy instructors that were trying to do their own thing, they were kind of trying to go behind Udemy's back. And so I love this idea that he's actually working hand in hand with Udemy, trying to create a win-win situation. Super cool. Yeah, that's when I mentioned to him, hey, Jason, I've got your next Mm -hmm. course idea because I don't know that a lot of people are are doing Udemy plus your own platform like he's doing. So he's made that work really, really well. I Honestly, when I asked him the question like, hey, what do you think would happen if you just removed the Udemy part of your business? I didn't expect him to answer the way he did. Like I felt like that he would still be ultra successful if he just removed Mm -hmm. Udemy. And that's, that's an outsider's perspective. And I wasn't thinking about all the details. And so that's, that's amazing. That's amazing how well it's working in conjunction with each other. Now, remind me, do you remember, did he say that his current income about 40% is Udemy and then 60% is his own? Was that right? Yeah, I think he might've even said 50-50, okay. but it's, it's, it's right around there. 40 to 50% is from Udemy. That's awesome. Now, let me ask you a question. I mean, obviously, I mean, you said making it work, but he has done tons of work. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a lot of work the way that he's doing it. Let's say that you you had a friend who was a Udemy instructor. They're making a full-time income doing Udemy and they don't want to do what he's doing right now. They say maybe someday, but for today, they just want to ride the Udemy wave as long as it goes on. But then they also have this awareness, um, just like the Amazon affiliates. I mean, in one day, Amazon used to pay out 6% to their affiliates and they dropped it to 3%. So what would you tell somebody who says, you know, Udemy is paying my bills today. I don't want to undercut the platform, but I do want to at least have somewhat of a plan for the future. What would you tell that person that says... Yeah, to have a plan. That's the key is to have a plan. If you're comfortable, that's fine. It's okay to be comfortable. A lot of people are making all of their income from like YouTube ads. They have a, they start a YouTube channel and that's their in, their end game is YouTube ads. But what if all of a sudden your channel gets demonetized or completely removed or their ad structure changes and you're only making 10% of what you were before? When you're on somebody else's platform, that can happen, right? Murphy's law, what can <laughs> What can go wrong will go wrong. And um, so you just need a plan, right? Even in my business, Piano in 21 Days, it's brought in $2 million. Great. There are things that could happen that could eliminate that. Not likely, but there are. That's one of the reasons that I do this side, the online course guy. I'm diversifying my family's income. I also enjoy Mm -hmm. it thoroughly, right? But I try to think about all the things that could happen. And if you are just on Udemy, that, and it's working for you, that's great. But have a plan. Think about some options so to where if it does start going down, if things change, you can easily start to pivot. If you're not ready to pivot now, at least have a plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to me, it seems like even if you're not going to do anything with your list, like you should be taking steps like Jason did to actually build the list, to get the emails. Because I mean, that's, that's going to be if Udemy was to pull the rug out on, from under you. I mean, that list is where you could be up and running with your own platform and you know, following your your formula in a month, you could at least have have something and start to bring it to your list. That's a great point as well. All right. So you guys talked quite a bit about course platforms. So am I allowed to guess yet uh, what platform you're leaning towards? <laughs> you can guess, man. I'm not saying I'm going to tell you. And I, I even am not, nothing's 100% on my side yet. But what, what are you thinking? I mean, I think that Kajabi, I mean, that's what I was thinking the whole time as you were <laughs> talking about the Gipic and LearnDash. You know? I loved where Jason, you know, I would have thought that LearnDash is simple, but I love where he said he's in this LearnDash Facebook group. And so somebody said, okay, I just downloaded it. What do I do now? And, and Jason was just like, oh no, like this is going to be bad. <laughs> I would have thought, yeah, you don't know. 
I don't know. I guess I assume that all these things are fairly user friendly, but man, that was uh, that was a little word of wisdom there. Anything WordPress is not user friendly. Oh. It doesn't mean it's bad, but it's not for non techie people or people that don't have techie people on their team, right? When I first launched my online course, I went the WordPress route, but that's the majority of what was out back in 2013. And man, it was tough. You had to hack things together. It wasn't seamless. So that's why these Teachables, Kajabis, and so on are so successful is it because it allows the everyday person who's not super techie to actually succeed with online courses. I would say like Teachable is probably one of the the most user-friendly, but the more user-friendly things are, the less like customizable they are as well. And to be honest with you, like that's kind of one of the reasons I don't use an iPhone, right? It's cool. It's user-friendly. Most people use it, but they lock more things down than say on Android, right? And that's that's just that's just me. I I was an engineer, like I am more techie. And so I, I like having more options. And so I don't want to be super locked down with my online course software either. So I would say, like I said, Teachable is probably the most user-friendly and a great fit for a lot of people. Probably not a good fit for me. Kajabi is cool. It's an interesting guess. I'm not going to say whether you're right or wrong. LearnDash is a lot more options, a lot more customization, but a lot more potential problems. And you got to think about where are you hosting it? Who's going to do the updates? If there's an update, what else is going to break, right? Like we talked about, there's no perfect platform. And that's part of my struggle right now is because I am taking a deep dive in all of them. And I'll start going down the rabbit hole of one path. I'm like, ooh, this is interesting. Ooh, that's cool. This is cool. This could work out. And then I just Mm. like, oh, but it doesn't do that? Come on, man. So that's where I am. I think that you really want the uh, Piano in 21 Days branded app. Is that something that's like, I really, really want it because I think my audience would really appreciate it. But as a part of it, you really want it to actually say Piano in 21 Days app, correct? Is that right? Yeah. As opposed, So like Kajabi has an mm-hmm. app, right? And I think we talked about that in the episode with uh, Chris Benetti last week. Kajabi has an app, but I don't want to pe- my new students to come into my world and it's like, okay, guys, now we have an app. Like, okay, go to the app store and type in Kajabi. And they're like, wait, what is Kajabi? You know? I, that's yeah. just too confusing for my users. I'm not interested in that. I don't know, man. I think that's, uh, I don't know. If I was giving you advice, which I guess I am, <laughs> I, think, I think that's kind of, uh, is it a vanity thing or is it truly for your customer? Because to me, when I heard you talk about it in the past, or I kind of got that sense that you really want this branded piano in 21 days app, um, I was thinking that you were doing that for, I don't know, just just you want it to look the best. But I think you're, I think your customer would be happy with the Kajabi app as an option. I mean, they can still go to the website if they actually want to see everything branded. <laughs> right. I'm looking for the, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I just want the best overall experience for my customers. Not to, I mean, certainly a motivation behind that is the better experience, the more results that my students get, the better my paycheck and my life get for sure. But it's not all about the, the monetary uh, benefit. And I just, I, Jason went down the path of an app and he had to cut the cord. I, like I said in the interview, I'm, I'm, a, I can be a little stubborn, but I'm, I'm dead set on this <laughs> app and I'm going to, I'm going to try really, really hard to make it happen. All right. Well, uh, I'm excited <laughs> to see how it goes. All right. So I loved how he lives in Puerto Rico. I mean, I, I definitely have a sense of wanderlust and I would have had no idea about this specific tax hack and that that was what brought him there. 
you know, I was just curious. So if you took this idea of wanting your kids to be around their grandparents um, and, and extended family, cousins and whatnot, I mean, like, where would you and your wife live today? Would it be France or, or would you be open to somewhere else? Or Meaning if that was not an issue? If that was not an issue. Yeah, just oh, uh, man. It's a big world. <laughs> uh, could be France, could be, you know, on the beach in Florida. There was a time I probably would have said like San Diego, California, but there's like a mass exodus of California right now. You're right. So just somewhere with with pretty um, pretty moderate weather, not too cold. I don't like the cold at all. In fact, my wife and I have this kind of agreement that we will always live south of I-10, okay. which is the interstate that connects, like I think, Jacksonville all the way to Los Angeles. And um, we've said that for 10 years. And it's funny because where we moved three years ago, I can literally see I-10 from outside my window. It's like right there, but we're just to the south of it. So we're still we're still just south of I-10. So yeah, probably like Florida Beach, possibly France, you know, south, southeastern France. But I've lived in Louisiana pretty pretty much my whole life and there's a lot lot to like here as well. Yeah. The other thing is I listened to that. I was thinking uh, we've talked in the past a little bit about how it could be cool to do an in-person online course, online course community meetup. And I was like, let's, let's crash Jason's house. So, Hey, Jason, if you're listening and uh, you're up for a bunch of rowdy, uh, black eyed, uh, course creators coming and hanging out at your house, uh, you know, hit us up, let us know if we can come and hang out there, uh, when the pandemic ends. Yeah. I mean, I've heard it's beautiful. I've never been, but the temptation of the tax savings is incredible. I've, I've looked into it briefly. Good for Jason for actually pulling the trigger on it, but it's, it's it's a little more complicated than this, but essentially you get taxed at about a flat 4%. Wow. If you do what Jason did, and that's the reason Peter Schiff moved down there, John Lee Dumas, tons of entrepreneurs have moved down there because instead of getting taxed 20, 30, 40, 50%, you get taxed around 4%. Wow. And so you think about a $2 million a year business, how much money you're actually saving by doing that. Oh, man. So then you guys did talk about the online business manager and uh, one of the key takeaways there, I mean, just this whole concept of the online business manager, um, it was founded by this Tina Force, Forsyth or Forsyth. You know, one of the main messages, if you're going to create an online course, is that you want a new, unique opportunity. And so essentially, this concept of the online business manager, you know, she basically created a new category and created this new word, this new formula. She didn't just call it an online course VA. She called it the online business manager. It looks like she trademarked that word. And so there's a lesson for course creators there as well is just, you know, you and Jason were both convinced to hire this specific certification. So yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And, and as I was looking into it more, I was amazed at how long it's been around and how long it's been a thing. Because in my head, I have like I feel like online business is kind of this newer thing the past five to ten years, but the internet has existed far longer than that, and and therefore online business has existed far longer than that. I mean, I remember early on in the episodes of this podcast, I interviewed the guy that founded BagpipeLessons.com, and I think he started it like back in two thousand one, and I was just blown away by that because I I feel like I'm kind of an early adopter at this online course thing online businessing and I started in 2013 but imagine if you know Yori would have gotten an online business manager back then and mm. man it, it's 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 the technology and all this is just really incredible and um that's really what stood out at me most as I was looking into the OBM thing is just how long it's been around 
Now, I was a little bit confused on the pay structure after listening to you guys chat about it. So mm-hmm. for a little while, it sounded like it was a dollar, you know, an hourly position with an hourly rate. And then um, you talked about these um, proposals that were um, kind of a salary monthly. And so can you explain yeah. how the, the pay is set up for an online business manager? Is it hourly or is it more of a salary? Yeah, it's more of a salary. It's more like a retainer kind of. It's more like, hey, I'll pay you this amount per month for this job, right? Okay. You end up working a, a somewhat consistent hours per week, but it's not it's not an hourly position. It's a get the job done position, as it should be. It's not just a, it's not just going down a task list. It's actually a, it's a it's a very high level position where you're looking at the future, you're looking at the big picture, and then breaking it down into small steps. And so, basically, every everybody that came to me, and I think everybody that came to Jason with like a proposal, they give you, hey, this is this is the job that I see. Here's the things that I'll be responsible for. They might throw in an hourly, like it, it's probably going to take about 20 hours a week. It's probably going to take about 10 hours a week, and for that, it will be you know four thousand dollars a month, seven thousand dollars a month. Okay, you know that they'll give you a they'll give you a, a number for the month. Mm, awesome. Um, and then you did share that you hired a new VA. So, I mean, I know we've gotten to know Emily a little bit on this uh, podcast and just uh, her role of helping to create blog posts and answer customer service questions. Can you explain what Emily's role is compared to this new VA? Yeah, great question. So I originally hired Emily three to four years ago because I needed some customer service help. And her background is in writing and in English. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal writer. Some of the best things that she's done for me is actually write blog posts and articles for piano in 21 days. Even she doesn't actually play piano, but she's she's worked with me for so long. She's she knows she knows a lot about piano for somebody that doesn't actually play. Uh, I think she used to a long time ago, but because for the longest time it was basically just me and Emily, I just handed her all kinds of different tasks, not just writing tasks, not just customer support tasks. So fast forward to today and she's got like 37 things that she's doing for me and they're all just like random things. Mm. There's some writing, there's some customer support and there's a lot of just general VA type tasks. And I would love to be able to get her to focus on more of the content and more of the customer support because she's so good at those things. Not that she's not good at the other things, right? But those are the other things are a little easier to offload to somebody else. So this is one of the things that Colleen helped me identify is like, hey, Emily's kind of stretched thin to an extent. Plus there's these things that a lot of people could probably be doing. So let's take like 10 hours a week. Let's start there and let's find somebody else that can do these, you know, eight things. And let's see where it goes. So that was great to have Colleen come in and help me identify that and help me to hire a, a new VA. And, and hopefully it works out for everybody. Hopefully it's a better situation for Emily, for me, for Colleen, and for the new VA as well. And where is that new VA from? Dallas. Dallas. All right. Very yeah, cool. In the United States. There you go. All right. So um, the last thing that I found really interesting was just the discussion of bonuses and profit sharing. What did you think of that? And and do you have any interest in adding that into your business? Yeah, I you know when I worked as an engineer, we did we had quarterly like profit sharing bonuses and that was really cool. It was unclear to me as an employee exactly how they came up with those numbers, right? Mm-hmm. They always talked about setting aside a certain amount of profits and then distributed that among the employees. So you never knew if it was tied to your performance or to your title or or what, it was a little unclear. I think that 
bonuses, profit sharing, that can incentivize people to want to be a part of your organization, do better work, but it's got to be structured the right way. And um, I, I admire what Jason has done. I would like to do something like that one day, probably, but I want to. I definitely want to do it the right way. And, and what that right way is, I don't know at this point. Do you do it? I mean, you, you've got yeah. an in-person business as well. Do you do that? Well, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting discussion because um, I would say that this definitely has pitfalls and you, you just kind of emphasize that. If a bonus or this profit sharing is not set up the right way, it actually can build resentment in your team. So let's say that you had this whole goal of bringing in you know, $2 million this year. And then let's say something comes up in your family. You're, you, know, you, you take some time off, you decide you want to go on a vacation and your, your actions decrease the income in your business. Then all of a sudden you don't make that goal and your employees can come to resent you because, you know, again, they lose whether it's five hundred, a thousand, two thousand dollars. I mean, that can be a big deal. I got an example in my own business. The, the thing that I'd say is that employers, when you start a business, you start to assemble a team, you give bonuses actually for future work. So you give a bonus or you do profit sharing based on this assumption that they're going to keep working for you. An employee views that as you are thanking them for past work. And the way that that can come into play is that if you give a bonus, the person can quit tomorrow. I mean, change is the only constant. And so this this happened to me. My second employee ever, she worked for me for a full year. And at the time, my business, my chiropractic office in person was still in precarious grounds. And so I didn't feel I could give her the raise I felt like she deserved. And so I said, listen, what I can do is give you an extra week of vacation. And so, you know, 40 hours of vacation, she quit the next week. And she's like, so I'll get that thousand dollars. And like, I was, I was on the edge. I had like, I don't know, maybe I had like $6,000 and I considered, I was somebody at the time I considered my emergency fund to be 20. So I was like, no, like you get, I'm like, you get one fifty second of a thousand dollars. And she was like, no. And so I pulled out my contract and my contract did not say that that vacation accrued weekly. So again, I mean, she felt completely, she said, no, that you gave me that based on how good I did for the first year. And I said, no, I gave you that based on you working for me for the next year. So all that to say, when you set up any kind of a bonus, there's another example. I had a company that was giving me advice and they had their whole team. Everybody was working and they said, if we reach this financial goal, we're going to take the whole team on a cruise. And they took the team on a cruise. As soon as they got back, six employees quit. And yeah. And so this, this coaching organization, they actually changed their whole stance. Up until then, they were like bonus profit share. They like swung full circle and actually overreacted and said, don't do that at all. Like it actually, you know, it backfires. So anyways, the main thing is just you want to set up a bonus or a profit sharing structure in a way that you never resent your employee. So anything you give, you have to be okay with them quitting the next day. And one way to do that is to do monthly or quarterly profit sharing. Again, anybody that comes into my office, I, I ask them you know, like about what they do. And so I have a guy that's like COO of this pretty large insurance company and they do bonuses and profit sharing. And I said, are you actually able to see where the individual employee works harder as a result of that? And he said, no, but it's more of a retention thing. He said, we do it quarterly. And he said, you know, just you know, they always know that there's some money piling up and it, it really does seem to help with retention. So I do think that a reasonable bonus or profit sharing structure paid out quarterly 
is probably the way to go. And don't let that money pile up so much that you're going to be mad at the person if they quit the next day. But the last thing, I guess, I would say that a bonus can't turn a donkey into a racehorse. (laughs) And so at the end of the day, I mean, you got to hire the right people. And personally, I've found that that I've been able to hire what I describe as mission-driven amiables. So amiables are the personality types where they really want to please other people. And then these people really care about, I mean, they care about our patients so much. They want to help these people. So they're mission-driven amiables. They're kind of like the golden retrievers of people. Like they just want to make you happy or maybe golden doodle. But that kind of person, you know, a bonus isn't going to make them work harder because they already care about the mission. They already want to make, they already want to make their manager happy. And so... Yeah. In that situation, I feel like an improperly set up bonus or profit sharing can actually be detrimental. So I'm going to stop ranting. I'm going to stop ranting. (laughs) That reminds me of something I'm sure I've mentioned on the podcast before, but one of my favorite parts of the really popular book, Good to Great by Jim Collins, is he talks about the bus and you want to get the right people on the bus, even before you figure out where that bus is going. And um, just having the right person on your team is just so, so, so important. Even if you don't know what role they're going to fill and where the company is even going, that's how important the right person is. And that's kind of, you know, kind of what happened with Emily several years ago is we didn't really know where her role was going to go, but she was definitely the right person to come on the bus. and, And we figured out where we were going as well. And the same thing with this new VA. It's like, I don't know exactly what this role is going to turn into for you and and what your role within the company is going to be. But darn it, you are an awesome person. I would love to have you as part of this team. I think it, you know, we we just we all really clicked immediately and I'm super excited to have her on board, even though we don't know quite where it's going yet. Awesome. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to wrap up this episode, David. Thanks for joining me here for another one and coming so prepared as usual. That black eye is looking a lot better. Hopefully, it's just about gone next time we talk. And by the time this episode actually comes out, I'm betting it's actually going to be gone. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thanks to Jason Dion for coming on yet again for the third time. All the show notes and links from today's episode, you can find at oc.show slash 154. And all of my resources to help you on your path to online course success, whether you're a beginner or you have an online course already, there's something for everybody over at theonlinecourseguy.com. That's going to do it for this episode. We'll see you next week. 